Greetings, standard nerds. This is Christopher McClanahan of DeeplyDapper.com. And Tom Catamonte of Third Rail Design Lab. And it's time to... Release the... Kraken! It's been too long since we've heard that noise, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) This week on Robot Kraken, we appease the beast with an assortment of news and updates about our art endeavors, as well as discuss changes to the Robot Kraken format, forum, and everything else. There will be no changes. There will be no changes. Except for where we'll change things. But other than that, there will be no other changes no one fear change because it will not affect your enjoyment of this. Any change is a good change with this. And and the only changes means, you know, we'll actually be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we – yeah, OK. So we have some stuff to talk about because it's been, I don't know, three years since we last recorded. But Approximately, yeah. In order to, in order to do it justice, we need, we need to suck the monkey. We do. What what is sucking the monkey for those of the listeners that have aged out of listening to podcasts or perhaps lost their hearing? <laughs> well, you know, it's been uh, what two months since we recorded, so that means our listenership has dropped ninety five percent, right? Yeah, yeah, approximately. Uh, for those remaining five uh, percent, uh, let's make it three percent for brand awareness and uh, of returning listeners plus new listeners who don't know. Sucking the monkey is the segment where we. We check the rations for this voyage, right, in this old-timey oh, yeah. way, which basically means what are we drinking? What are you drinking? What am I drinking? I am drinking a beer from Buffalo Bill's Brewery out of New York, I think. New York. Uh, I think New no, Oh, no, actually, Hayward, California. My bad. <laughs> We're really close. <laughs> when I go to Hayward, the first thing I think of when I cross, when I cross that, that <laughs> nominal city border is this is very New Yorkish. It's so I think New York. it's kind of Staten Islandish, but it's – Right. Uh, Yeah, I'm drinking America's Original Pumpkin Ale from Buffalo Bills Brewery. And I haven't even opened it yet, so let's let's crack this guy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You're going to step on that bottle cap and drop your iPhone. You realize that? (laughs) I can't do any more damage to my iPhone than I already – ooh, this is pumpkin-y. Wow. Is that a good thing? It is good. Most of the pumpkin – Ales I've had recently have not had much of a pumpkin flavor, but this has some flavor. Huh. It's got a super generic bottle, but it tastes good. All right. Well, here's what I have. It's it's a Petrus Ode Bruin, O-U-D-B-R-U-I-N, Ode Bruin. I was talking to my friends over at Whole Foods uh, uh, about delicious beers. I was actually looking for a sour. and uh, It's hard to find a good sour. It is, especially bottled, right? Mm-hmm. And um, this one says – so it's a product of Belgium. Okay, so it's 33% footer beer and 67% young brown beer. What's so, footer beer? A good question. I didn't do my homework. Um, you didn't ask your friends with, at Whole Foods? It's – oh, my gosh. Okay, here it is in English. Uh, Petrus Ode Bruin is a blend of 33% Petrus aged ale or pale pure footer beer that has been aged for two years in oak – Footers, so I assume it's just sort of extra fermented. Sixty-seven percent young brown beer in this blend. The young dark beer contributes the reddish brown color, and the aged pale contributes the slightly sour, slightly sour 
flavor. It's a typically Flemish red-brown ale, hmm. also or as tradition dictates. I'm reading this from the from the heavenly glow of my Cintiq screen. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was thinking normally you're better at reading than this. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag garage office problems. All right, I'm gonna take a sip. Yeah. Floater mm. is essentially a giant wooden barrel. By yeah, the way, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's delicious. Um, wait, I want to taste it again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll do. Okay. So, soda is just a pretentious way of saying barrel. Right. <laughs> well, I don't know enough about craft beer and international types of beer to speak with any intelligence, but I have gotten the sense that a lot of these interesting uh, formula formulae are they they pull stuff in from the, the the processes you would associate with other types of fermentation. Yeah. So I I'm 100% for it. I love it. When Fodor spelled F O E D E R, so I'm I'm guessing that's German or something maybe. Well, uh yeah, it it kind of looks that way, but I don't know. Yeah, it could be. It looks foreign to me anyway. That is certainly foreign. <laughs> I don't know. Belgian or German or what. So we should tell people what's going on. So here, so um, it's been a while. It has <laughs> been a while. I think now our last was podcast was September fifteenth, and we were talking about Rose City Comic Con. <laughs> That's right. We have some things to talk about. We have a lot of fun stuff, and we should get the change, the the non changed changes out of the way. Yes. Um, but we should acknowledge that. Yeah. It. it to, to delay in podcast releases is death. And it is. We knew that was going to happen to some degree because your con schedule really cranks up mm-hmm. um, in the fall. Plus, you have to do, and we can talk about this more in the shipyard segment, but you have to do a lot of um, heavy lifting to prepare for the holidays as well. So, Typically. our original plan, <laughs> well, <laughs> so our original plan was to stockpile enough content that we would be able to release some episodes mm-hmm. that we have put in the can in ahead of time and then and then there wouldn't be this lag but things got in the way yes life so crazy yeah and things <laughs> got so crazy that you, you know you wouldn't even have had time to do that so well and you but, were flying to to other cities and countries and everything with between your job and family and everything else and it was just uh, we neglected you fair listeners and we apologize <laughs> It's been a time of trials and tribulations, but has. Uh, one positive from it, though, was having a little distance from it and you having an opportunity to talk to some some peers in the podcasting community. You and I both sort of hit returning to this uh, from a similar standpoint, which mm-hmm. was uh, we should focus on what is what interests us and what might be interesting about us. And what makes and, us unique. Yeah, sure. And yeah. less about what's the news of the day, because when we were recording initially on a more regular basis, we could talk about the kind of the events of that week mm-hmm. in entertainment news and comic news because we're excited about it and we want to talk about it. And, you know, it was fairly current. Right. And now we're, you know, our recording schedule is a little different. And plus, it's like we both were saying earlier, everybody else is doing that anyway. Right. There's yep. so many websites that you can collate nerd news now. I mean, when you look at Variety and Entertainment Weekly and they're covering nerd news as thoroughly as comicbook.com, yeah. I mean, that's that's a sign that maybe every single podcast you listen to doesn't need to report the exact same news. Well, and I don't want people to panic. 
you can still get all your news at robot-kraken.com. Absolutely. I'm, I'm posting it in a much more compressed digest format. Like I'm not, uh, I'm just not writing the same degree of content cause I'm too busy. And again, it's more the bullet points of what we're interested in at this time. But, but at least for our recordings, we're going to talk more. We're going to spend more time talking about the art. Yeah. More time talking about the convention circuit and what it's like to be a small press artists. Uh, and, you know, when you think about it, we're coming from two interesting, interestingly different perspectives on it. You are someone, you and your wife, have pursued this as a full-time gig, as a struggling small press and, uh, you know, uh, you know, curiosity creator, right? Right. And, then, and so and all of the unique pressures that are associated with that. And then I'm coming at it from, as someone who's got a profession – I'm I'm I have another job and a whole other life and family, kids and all this and then I'm trying to squeeze all this in and you know <laughs> yeah few hours of the day and so you know the pressures that we have some of them are very similar but some are extremely different right 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 so and I think, I think that's too. yeah and and you know we we've gotten some feedback from the podcast because we have a few loyal listeners and one of the things they've said they've enjoyed about us is our personalities and our our take on things and us just reporting the news just wasn't really cutting it for us so we might still bring up a story every now and then if we have something very specific to talk about or rant about um what what we were interested in recently that's fine yeah yeah we just don't have to capture everything also the other thing i was going to say was we still want to be hitting our movie reviews Mm -hmm. whenever we can or, or or content reviews and certainly you know, as we go forward, when we have the chance to go into more detail on certain films, particularly if we saw it around the same time or even together, if that ever happens again, um, we can dedicate whole episodes to that. But I think that it's really interesting what we were talking about earlier that maybe, you know, we can we can uh, compress our reviews into sort of micro reviews similar to what we've done when we write it, write it for the site and just kind of hit the stuff we were interested in, because, again, our listeners, just like with the comic <laughs> news. Uh, if you're already listening to this podcast, you've already heard that content anyway somewhere else. Right. And you also probably don't need to be told what the premise of Doctor Strange is, right? <laughs> but we can just dive right into talking about what we liked or didn't like or what was cool and throw a red tentacle on something and move on. So, yeah, Although I, think, I think it'll be good. I do have to, to assume, fair listeners, that Tom and I may go on at length about certain things in our brief reviews. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Because there's All no I'm way saying, we can possibly do a micro review with the two of us talking, but we're going to try. A it's a relative context <laughs> thing. I just think we're we're loosening ourselves from the tether of a structure. Yes, we're just going to talk about whatever we want to talk about, pretty much for however long we want to do it and whenever we want to do it. And then the other important format change that we're hitting, and this is the one that'll affect people the most. I think we're going to try. But there will be no effect. There'll be no be... effect. As regular as clockwork, but we are going to go to a monthly release schedule. I think, right? Well, I don't know. All these, all those um, <laughs> iPhones just stopped on their phone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it makes a sound when people unsubscribe, but if it, if it did, it was fine. Wow. You know? <laughs> well, and here's our logic with this. We want to produce something that's fun to listen to, that's nice and long, that you can dive all the way into and enjoy. Yes. And you know from our previous episodes, we have a hard time 
cutting ourselves back necessarily. But, and why should we? It's right, a podcast. Right. We like a to talk. <laughs> That's the point. However, I like uh, to talk, but the editing gets a little daunting when we're talking about a three-hour podcast that I have to cold down to a listenable weekly podcast. So we've decided we're just going to let our flag fly, let this pirate ship flow as long as it wants across the ocean blue, and we'll release it monthly. We'll try and bring you a load of content to tide you over for the whole month and make sure that you get something every month to enjoy from us. You know, I like um, – I actually – when you brought that up before, I thought, you know, whenever I'm listening to podcasts, if – I'm enjoying it. I find myself glancing at the time elapsed, right? Usually right. I'm listening in the car or on the bike. But if I'm in the car, you know, I'm always looking at that number like, oh, I hope I have – it's like that kind of stockpile mentality. <laughs> like I hope there's a big number there, right? Mm-hmm. I And I start and stop what I'm listening to all the time. You know, my commute is a variable time that I'm spending but I might have other things that come up or I may have to pause it and talk to – pick up the kids or do this or that and – so, Answer you know, I don't, I don't need questions. It. That's right. I didn't <laughs> reload. I don't, you know, I don't need it to be a consistent um, sort of finite format. It can be as it could be a five hour long recording and I'm just going to keep starting and stopping it as I need to. Right. And I would rather have more content and not get to it all rather than have not enough content and have it end and be frustrated, which is what happens on the few podcasts that I really enjoy listening to they end they end before I'm ready for them to end so yeah we were just we were kind of getting tired of this this time constraint that we were imposing upon ourselves partially because we can't really find time to to dig out recording space until Tom's kids are in bed I'm done with my work for the day and so we're recording rather late usually like it's 11:30 here in Idaho right now which means it's like 6.30 there in California. I don't know how time works, but... I think that's how it works. It's late anyway, and we were having a hard time saying, okay, we can only record for an hour tonight, but we have to get this done so we can get an episode out this week, whereas now, every month, all month long, we can be like, hey, we have something to talk about, and we can get on and talk about it and bring it to you guys in a monthly massive chunk of awesome entertainment. So, like I said, there'll be no change. None just, at all. Just just some changes. <laughs> all good changes. You'll learn, listening, fair <laughs> listeners, that you can't listen to anything Tom says with any kind of reliability. Are you suggesting an unreliable narrator? <laughs> it's possible. I'm not going to say yes, but it's possible. <laughs> Chris, am, am I a host? Are you a host? No. Yeah, well, I'm it was, a. It was more suspenseful in my mind. Oh, then yes. Are are you a host? I feel like I might be a host. You could be a host. I have no idea if I am or not. You know, honestly, I... if I am, they really need to reevaluate their their <laughs> their structural engineering because I'm a poorly made host. <laughs> you are the first gen cowboy that's in the bar, or whatever, in his back office, like oh, in the shit. conference room, whatever it is. <laughs> shit, I'm the fat town drunkard of Westworld. <laughs> <laughs> There's something on your mind. Tick 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 tick. Are you there, buddy? Yeah. Okay, so um, so. We have a lot of stuff. We've watched many things since we, we last. Have. Uh, we've read many things, and there's also a lot of stuff coming up. But I think we should focus first on our shipyard segment and talk about the art. The art. Yar. Because there's been a lot of changes. There has. 
I have put on multiple pairs of pants in the last two months. <laughs> <laughs> what have you, you been have doing, seen, Tom? Well, you okay? So you've seen some changes in, in the business side of things, and I've made a lot of changes in. Well, I guess the business side of things. <laughs> well, so the biggest difference since, okay, so when we last recorded, it was our, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm never wrong, the last recording was our field review at the end of Rose City, correct? Yes. And at yes. that point, we were, it was our first time recording together live mm-hmm. in the same room with a pizza and a lot of beer. You were sitting on my lap. If I remember weird. correctly, your, your wife was fine with it. And then, <laughs> uh, and then, so what we were planning on was that the next month we were going to do the alternative press expo, which we did right. the previous year. And we were optimistic about it. We were nervous about <laughs> the fact that it did not appear to have any marketing. There was very little, uh, you know, con Anything. management communication and yeah. all of the, 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 the bubbling up signs of discontent and concern on the interwebs, um, uh, they were increasing yeah. <laughs> the of people we talked to. So we kind of went into that con thinking, well, it doesn't matter because again, we're doing this to hang out. Plus it's a con. So we'll see. Right. However, my attitude about it started to change a little bit between the end of Rose city and the start of ape, because you and your wife pushed me hard and we said, started those gears turning in your head. You did. You said, you know, you're coming out to the cons to hang out, but also you have all this good stuff. You have the books, but that's all you have. People keep asking you for prints. Maybe you should make some prints. And I said, well, <laughs> yeah, but I'm not trying to make a business out of this deal, really. It's just mostly to hang out with you and sell a few books and hang out and draw. And then you got me thinking about it. I said, yeah, you're right. Maybe I should do this. And so then I spent basically all of my waking awake time that I wasn't working or dealing with the family on that process. So in right. less than a – what? Less than a month? Three yeah. weeks? Yeah. Because you, you said – I still had to print them, but, uh, yeah, I put together 340 or so unique prints, which was a huge deal. I went from zero to 340. Well, and it's important to note that although you had all of the content drawn because you, your, your production of art is outrageous to me, but you are also very format focused and all of your stuff was not proportionally designed for an 11 by 17 print. And so you're like, I'm going to completely redesign my packaging and how this is done. (laughs) And I'm going to reformat every single one of these things. (laughs) You blow me away sometimes. And edit a few of them. And so, (laughs) and so, yeah, what make, what comprised that first 340 or so was everything that I felt, I felt comfortable reformatting to make it work that looked good on 11 by 17 that seemed reasonable Mm -hmm. to get it out the door by the deadline to get it printed (laughs) and i ran out of time i had more stuff that i just couldn't format in time but i still have maybe probably over 200 to go (laughs) in terms of stuff i haven't printed and stuff that i put um, into my you know fix this or that folders right like because i'm i'm going after content that spans over 10 years right and so right. you know the farther back i go more and more stuff archiving because i didn't think it held up to my current standards but there were some pro- projects where i looked at it and said well if i change this or this i'm going to like it again so i have those in the shop right right <laughs> waiting to be edited so i'm going to still be working on print production for for quite a while more but the big picture thing though is i went from in september of 2016 
just being thankful that I somehow managed to put out three art books in a year. Yes. And right. <laughs> and, 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 and selling some original art and, and doing some commission work and just sitting at the table and drawing. And I was perfectly content with that. Um, and then in a month's time, you know, I'm at the table at, at ape with multiple portfolios of, of poster art and lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff to sell. Um, and had there been someone to sell it to, it would have been, <laughs> but you know, it was a, a substantially different table for me, uh, one month later for the, I mean, really for the first time ever, you were coming to something with something other than your original inks and your books. Right. And you, you talk about how you still have hundreds of stuff to do. But the simple fact is, is any of these people listening here that have any interest in possibly doing cons, doing it yourself, going as an artist, you never get everything finished. Ever. No, of course. <laughs> There's always the, at least a dozen things that you didn't get done. Well, I'm in the design industry as a, as a profession. And, you know, as, as I try to tell younger uh, designers who come up, you know, the, uh, project deadlines are not about hitting hitting everything you're supposed to hit. They really inevitably become uh, thumbing the dike. Yes, and um, trying to stop the, the the most egregious gaps in the content and hit enough marks that you can keep going. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Present so, the the closest to something you're happy with. You can get to. <laughs> well, and there was a lot of logistical change about going from. I mean, it wasn't easy coming to, say, Portland with the books that I brought just because, you know, as we talked about before, I mean, I was <laughs> traveling with 100 pounds of stuff in a backpack. So, you know, that wasn't easy because I was bringing stuff that was physically heavy, but it still was fairly compact. It was stacks of three books plus the original art bin plus my sketchbook, right? And, right. The, and the rum and coke, and there you go. Here now with content – I not only had the 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 stock of prints to bring, just like you have all the stock of all the products that you bring, mm -hmm. but I also had the 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 real estate issue of display, right? right? Those portfolios. So I have a number of these very expensive eleven by seventeen, well, <laughs> actually larger nineteen by twenty four, whatever the hell it is, uh, portfolios that have to be out and accessible to be flipped through, right? And we re we quickly realized that our days of sharing a table are over, right? <laughs> we need space. We both need as much space as we can get. And I now have real estate. I need to spread the stuff out to be looked at as well as have all the stuff on the wall and the thing. And so, yeah, it became a substantially different thing to, to pack and to bring and to set up and to actually have on the table for people to look at. Yeah. And, it you know, it's. it's been fun sharing a table with you, but we're still going to be together logistically as often as we can but the simple fact is is the two of us both have full tables or multiple tables worth of stuff to sell and i think it's beneficial for that because we can still go to shows enjoy hanging out and doing things and dicking off uh but both of us might actually make some money as well which is great it's <laughs> <laughs> pretty awesome well and and uh you know i just i think about i mean we have we have to talk about eight but you know i think about all of the you know you take set aside this the the con this con specific issues that we we had you know i there were many things that i you know i go into new experiences with a fairly analytical approach even when i'm uh uh maybe overwhelmed or tired a little discombobulated because i'm processing a lot of input at once and you're like tom just open that or whatever <laughs> but the bottom line is you know it's a it's a it's a dry run right and so 
I was making mistakes or there were things I noticed about that first table arrangement that I realized, well, now I have to think about these things in a different way. Example, <clears throat> I could not control, I could not control where the light was, but right. it was unfortunate. We were right under, we were directly under the light, the row of uh, overhead fixtures. And so there was an incredibly strong glare on my portfolios. People had, so I, as the con progressed, I started moving them at a certain angle and sort of trying to mitigate that. But the bottom line was, I'm now dealing with a reflectivity problem I didn't have before. And that's something you can never plan for because you have no idea how the lighting's going to hit, where it's going to be. And right. it's something you just kind of have to adjust for on the fly. But it's something that it does make a difference. If somebody walks past and they just see a glare, they're not seeing your product that you're presenting. Well, but here's the mitigation. So I did. I did put up some some prints in plastic along the vertical surface in front of the table as mm -hmm. as you have done and we did have some stuff up on the up on the assembly behind us but that's important right because that brings right. people into the distance but also the having more table space is critical that's what was very I was very aware of that because okay so there's a glare being hit but also the people don't have any way of – there was no real estate to move the portfolio in a way that could get comfortable, right? Because right. there was only so much space. And so having more space gives you more flexibility to get things out of the you – know, hopefully optimize how someone is going to look at it. And also you got to have them all – got to have them all open. I had number, a number of times when someone who's not buying anything is flipping through one portfolio one piece at a time and then mm -hmm. telling me a story. It's perfectly great. I love that. That's fine. But then there was two other people who were looking over their shoulder or something or like saying, hey, do you have X? And I'm like, yeah, it's in the back of that portfolio. But do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like now, especially as I, I have even more content, it's going to be important to have it spread out and uh, more accessible to more people at one time. Yeah, absolutely. But um, but anyway, that was a whole lot of change in one month, right? Right. It was a tremendous amount. I mean what you did in a month – was something that a lot of people take a year of tweaking and adjusting at different shows to do. And you had the, the ground basis built because you had all the art. And you have the ability to somewhat automate your reformatting compared to a lot of people. But it was pretty impressive to show up and see the sheer amount of prints you suddenly had available to people well and you had muscle pulls from bringing all the prints that you had printed <laughs> for me in idaho but <laughs> yeah but i mean you know also yeah you're right i didn't have to draw any of that i, I wasn't drawing all that original content i was re repurposing it but it it goes back to something i've been doing for a decade which is scanning and working at very high resolution because i didn't know what the future would would require and i was criticized a fair amount by some of our peers on in our art share groups mm -hmm. Uh, about the fact that I worked at too high resolution. Like, why are you doing that? You know, cause <laughs> pushing the limits of each of the machines I've worked on, right? I scan at 600 DPI and I color at 300. Um, and you know, oh, you only need 72 DPI for screen and, and max at max 150 for large format printing, you know, posters and stuff. But you know, from my perspective, you're going to, it's sort of like recording music, right? Right. Record it in the heavy loss, loss, lossless format because you never know, you're never going to, you can never get better than your original, right? Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, to me, all these years of working at this, you know, being being uh, 
being comprehensive about how I produce each of the pieces of art with lots of layers and being consistent about my layer standards and trying to keep, you know, accurate copies of all my art. I actually keep them all in generally one or two places, unlike you. And having them also um, be high resolution meant that in a case like this, where now I'm taking a lot of these these pieces that were in a fairly square aspect ratio and I'm bumping them up to this long 11 by 17, you know, right. I had to move certain figures. I had to like think of composite stuff, like where there was a background or there was like, it's a bomber girl on the side of a, of an airplane or something. You know, I had to start moving stuff around, like take the figure and get it large enough that it's aesthetically pleasing in this, in this large format container. But then I also had to move background elements and text elements to make them make sense. Um, uh, compositionally and I had changed I had to change a lot of that stuff as I would go because I would say this just doesn't work in this format anymore because yeah. you know it's not all one size fits all right so it was a there was a lot of snap decisions but <laughs> but anyway so that was that one thing that was one month of change we did that con and then and then after that I I said okay well I, what I need to do is finish the finish the the four or five year long project of getting a website done because I had I had a good website, right? And I had the comic reader for my own sequential art stuff, and I had galleries and everything else. But then the technology of the web moved way past what I was was belaboring, trying to build everything myself, right? Right. Everything else kind of moved forward, and we got into this world of, you know, completely different priorities in in art sites on the web than when I last built a site. And I had taken my site down and put the process blog up in the meantime. And we've and I put my stuff on DeviantArt and other things, but mm -hmm. the idea was I was rebuilding that site, and it just kind of went on forever because I couldn't I couldn't crack some of the logistical problems with it. I couldn't get JavaScript to run properly in my containers for some reason. I couldn't it seems get like that's just an eternal thing. The websites never quite work the way they should work. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I was having I mean, I had this whole I had mapped out how the new site was supposed to be. I had worked out the graphics for it. And I, and I knew I had the framework and I just had to build it. But the problem was I couldn't get certain components to work reliably. And I kept exploring stuff. And, you know, I had put a lot of um, time and energy invested into Adobe's in-house uh, system, their Behance network, and then their front-end service. And then they changed that at the last minute. Like right as I was ready to implement, they changed something in a fundamental way that made it not work for me. And so after we had our con in October mm – -hmm. I was looking very remember I was looking very deeply at like I need to I need to figure this out and at the same time I had come to the conclusion I needed to really focus on a commerce solution to it. I needed to bring in the ability for people to buy stuff off the site because I had gone 10 years where if I did have something for sale for people whether it was commissions or a physical thing it was like just contact me. You know? <laughs> right. We're at a point now where now now I'm actually getting eyeballs on the stuff at the conventions and people are taking my card and and they're expecting to be able to go to a website and see stuff that they were looking at at the table and more. And I still didn't have a mechanism to get that to them or even to show what was available as a thing. Everything was still being focused as, you know, this is this is something that was drawn and this is how it was done. But I didn't have anything structured for this is how you can get it. And so, um, I, you know, I, I, I sorted. I cracked the nut. But it took a lot of um, – I took a couple of weeks of, of sort of deep dive searching on trying to figure out how to make it work. And then I finally came to a solution I liked. And then I did another round of several weeks of nights of just banging this stuff out. And then uh, last week or just, just before Thanksgiving, I launched the new website. And it it's looks easy, lovely. It's simple. It's very minimal, but mm -hmm. I like it. It's got – it's designed so that everything you're looking at, if, unless it's a little update post about news or something, everything you're looking at has a, has a link to buy it. Yeah. Right? It's very simple. Click, click, click. 
the shopping cart's there. Nice I and easy. I love the way the shopping cart works on that too. It's so it's so clean. Yeah. And uh, and you know, there's a lot of back end stuff that and, you know you and I could talk about later. But the mm-hmm. bottom line is, the 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 stress is you want to bulletproof it in the front end. You you want to bulletproof it first because you're going to be cloning that same. The, that mechanism didn't allow me to clone pages, right. but I'm cloning process, right? That was a, a compromise right. system. It's a space-based system. I, you can't clone those pages, but you're cloning your process so that you can get faster, right? Yeah. I got to hit these smart, da, 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 and do it. And like I told you the other day, I'm down to about – if I'm working on processing, getting stuff onto the side, I'm working at a, at a rate of about four minutes per item, right? Right. Four minutes. Every four minutes, I'm getting another one on for that period of time that I'm working, and that's – when you think about the number of steps that I have to go through between building the cart component and then building it into the site itself and publishing it and tagging and all that stuff, four minutes is – that's fast. It is so, fast. Well, and especially if you go to the website and check out the things you've got. You've got some background info. Sometimes you have some extra little photos in there of some process work. It's not just a shopping page you're looking at. It's an actual portfolio and that kind of thing, which I think is really cool. But the stress was I had to figure out how it was supposed to work at first because it's not as dynamic as the way I used to work with Dreamweaver. You could, you know, you could make a change, and because you're using templates, you could make a change and have it globally, you know, retroactively sort of affect everything that you've done, and then re-upload all that stuff, right? Right. Like you could say, "Oh, this is not working. I'll fix this," and then sp- send that change globally. And while there are some components of the build system for Squarespace and, and my shopping cart system um, that I can do that with. The fundamental thing is each of those pages is its own thing. Right. So if I were to find, as I did, I found a problem, which was I copy in links. They don't, they don't become dynamic links. <laughs> okay. So all of that stuff for the first 300 or something of these things on the site, it'll say, you know, you want more, follow this. And it's a dead link. And it's even a dot, 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 right? Like it's not even a full link. It's been abridged, right? I'm not going to go back and change those, right? It's done. But the bottom line is I didn't realize that until, you know, three weeks into it. And I went and checked one. I was like, oh, I thought I I thought I went up and down the thing testing everything. Curses. So anyway, that's been my thing. I have not drawn enough in the last few months, but I've been building a lot of back-end stuff. <laughs> That pays for you know it pays pays for itself in the long run, but it's a lot of time and a lot of cost right. that goes into getting that stuff up and running. And now I can now I'm just at a point where I'm phasing back into actually doing some art, so that's great. Hooray, art! Yeah. So you've had a huge. I mean, yeah, you've had some some trials, but I want to talk about the positive thing. You had a huge, you had a huge project just recently end and become as you know funded. Yeah. And we should talk about that. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a huge project per se, but it was it was daunting. Uh, we decided to do our first Kickstarter and we went into it a little blind. I mean, I did research because I'm incapable of doing anything without at least spending hours online looking things up. But even doing all of that, you don't really know what you're getting into with Kickstarter unless you just dive in. And we decided to start really small with it, um, basically because all of the research we've seen, your second Kickstarter is significantly more likely to be successful if your first Kickstarter is. So we're like, you know what? Let's do something that we have an infrastructure built in for that we know we can do at the bare minimum amount. 
Right. So we decided let's do some fun Christmas cards, uh, a few little collection items in addition to it. We'll do Krampus and Cthulhu themed because why not? That's what Deeply Dapper does. And we yeah. did a collection of Christmas cards, uh, primarily Christmas cards, but we also had enamel pins, buttons, an ornament, a pretty good collection of things. And we set the the goal really low. We set it at three hundred bucks because that was enough money for us to cover printing and the cost of the enamel pin. We figure right. as long as we hit that amount, we can cover costs. Even if we don't make any money off of it, at least we'll have a successful Kickstarter. We'll get the word out. Uh, one of the cool things about Kickstarters is once they're on the update list. Uh, if we do another Kickstarter later, we can send out an update to those Kickstarters, the people that backed us on the previous one, and be like, hey, our new one's active now. Come check it out. Absolutely. And so it's got a little bit of a built-in mailing list and access there. And, you know, I, I wanted something where if it exploded, we could still handle it. Or if it just stayed nice and steady and we hit that 300 buck mark, we'd still be all right. Right. And we we ended up making a thousand bucks, which was pretty solid. I'm happy with that. I mean, obviously, I would have loved to have made fifty thousand bucks, but a thousand dollars was kind of that line where we made enough money to get everything comfortably. We got to do a little bit of nicer print version on the cards than we were going to do. Instead of buying it from like the cheapy PS print, we went through the local print shop, so we got better quality on the card stock. Uh, the the print quality is a little nicer than we would have gotten from the online place. And you know we're we're packing them right now. Actually, I spent half the day today uh, compiling our card collections together, and within the next couple of days, we're going to be mailing that off. But it was kind of it was we found some interesting challenges with the Kickstarter because one thing when we started it, I didn't have anything like I didn't have an idea for what I was drawing or any of that. And so we started with six new designs from scratch and wanted them within a week or two. <laughs> yeah. That was a big mistake. <laughs> uh, in the future, when we're doing any kind of Kickstarter, I'm not going live until all of the art is complete because I don't want this pressure to be like, oh, my God, I have to finish this card because what if these people that signed up for it, I post the original, the final art and they're like, screw that. Never mind. Unsubscribe kind of thing. Well, and, and you know, you're specifically – you're targeting a holiday. <laughs> right. I mean, that's a, that's a huge difference that the, the vast majority of Kickstarters don't, or Indiegogo or anything else, crowdsourced projects usually are an open-ended. They say, well, we're going to aim for X, but, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and the physical design objects like the, the engineered products that I, that I fund. Right. You, know, you have to go out and get factory, get fi do factory approval, and then they got to find someone, and then they prototype, and you know, it's all fine and good to have something in hand, but there's a lot of compromises when you get into the great machine. Right. Have them built. And I've watched projects go well over a year before they're ready when they thought they were three months out. Right. Yeah. And a lot so. of them that I've backed have kind of ended up that direction. I do a lot of like movies that I've backed, music, that kind of thing. And yeah, like you said, sometimes 
it's stuff that isn't completed or even remotely completed and video games in particular run way over. Yeah. And that was something where we were like, you know what? We can't do that. It's a holiday thing. We have to have these cards ready to go out. I'd I'd love them in people's hands by Krampus night because, I mean, that's – people have to be able to sign them and send them to their family. And I think next year we're going to be even earlier with it if we do another collection because I want it to be something that the art is complete – 100% 100% post it and say, okay, as soon as this is over, we're ordering these and we're ready to rock and roll. Well, um, but to be fair, you, your Kickstarter before the holidays was sort of like my attempting to do prints uh, a few weeks before the next con. <laughs> you know, it's not like you – I mean I know you had some – you had another project in mind that you postponed mm-hmm. this year. But, you know, it's not like you you said in April, hey – I'm going to do some holiday cards. Right. And and all of a sudden in, you know, November, we're like, well, uh, we have a problem. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You pulled it out pretty quick. Yeah. And considering how slow I am with my art in particular, I was pretty happy with where we ended up. Uh, But, you know, it's something where I think we'll probably do it again next year because it was fun. I, I liked doing the Christmas cards and I liked the idea of people sending out my cards to people for Christmas. But I think next year we're going to keep it a little simpler. That was one thing that we got a little bit of feedback on is people were like, you know, I like all the options. I like all the different stuff we can get. Yeah. But it's a little confusing. It is. And and I think um, sorting out how you make options and how – and not only how – I mean it's one thing to give people tiers. Mm-hmm. In the in the in the selection of how they want to fund it, which is useful, but also just the the survey. Yeah. Like so far, you think your survey was you know confirm your address and then go to the website and add. To, tell me if you want anything else, right? Right. But you know, I've watched, I've seen varying degrees of success in in post fund surveys. Some where it's very logical about how you're putting together your options mm-hmm. and what you have to pay for additional versus not. And then some, it's like all over the map, and I can't figure – I can't make heads or tails of it, and, and in the end, I don't even know what I bought, right? Well, and that was one thing that we really – oh, my god. We spent so much time. I probably spent more time on figuring out whether we were going to charge shipping or how much we should charge for the products to cover shipping than I did on the artwork itself because you know, you've got international, you've got national, you've got – the stuff we were offering, we were offering flasks and buttons and artwork and cards, and the the weight is all over the place. Oh yeah. And I'm just, we were finally like, you know what? Let's make American shipping free. We'll okay. add the cost into it because there is no way we can figure out how to charge for shipping on this. And I think realistically, if you're doing a Kickstarter and someone's signing up for it. If they're pledging and then a $15 shipping charge pops up, they're a little more likely to be like, ah, never mind. That's right because they, they can technically back out, right? Right. And it, the, the shipping thing shows up before they've even technically bid 100% on backing you. And uh, so, I mean, they can stop before they even confirm a, a bid on it. So it's it's something where we really made the decision, okay, let's make the shipping included in the cost so that somebody clicks on the, the $15 reward, they're paying 15 bucks solid. There's not this yeah. extra five dollar upcharge that shows up after the fact. 
and you know i i think we did a lot of things right with it uh we still we're not done with it yet still obviously but there's definitely some some takeaways that i didn't expect i didn't really think about the fact that none of the stuff I looked into told you anything about f making the surveys afterwards. I had no idea that for every reward level, I would have to retype everything and insert all of the multiple choice questions over <laughs> again. No, no. And I was like, really? They don't have this thing where they can just copy the one above it and add the next step onto it? But no, you yeah. have to type everything in. And once you've sent that out, there's no amending it. You can't send out a second update unless you just send like a, a centered update to a certain class of like bid. And that's stuff that I never saw anywhere on any of the Kickstarter websites I went to. I was Isn't like, it man. astounding? Isn't it astounding when they when someone builds the mechanism for people to like an engine for people to build stuff, mm -hmm. and then they make it in such in they they have such limitations in how you make efficiency. You're like, did you not think it through? Like like I was saying before about I mean I love Squarespace. I have to I came around. I used to mm -hmm. be very critical of those those kinds of prepackaged drag and drop uh, websites. drag drop kind of things, <laughs> right? But I have to say. You know, there's. It, it turned out to be this was the one I chose, and I really like the process that I have going. But it astounds me that I cannot clone what's effectively a blog post. That right. I can't create a template. Why am I not able to make a template of anything I want? Why are only certain types of content templatable? <laughs> right. um, and in your case, it's like, why would you make it hard to be comprehensive in your communication with your backers? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And, you know, in one way, it actually helped me because there were a couple of other questions I'd thought about adding. And, like, it, it helped me be like, okay, I'm just going to keep this simple. We'll ask them, what would you like to see next year if we do it again? And what color do you want? <laughs> right. And right. that it helped me streamline that, which maybe is their intent because they are really specific in the the instructions. Hey, no marketing shit, no asking people demographics, that kind of thing. And I appreciate that because I have gotten a few surveys from Kickstarters that were just like 17 questions. And I'm like, really? None of this stuff applies to what I bought. Right. Why are you asking me any of this stuff? Like, which one of these movies do you like better? I actually had that on one of my video games that I bought. And I'm like, really? I, I should not have to even worry about answering that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So, you know, I it's it's been a fun learning process. I'll probably write up a little blog on it and post it on deeplydapper.com and robot-kraken.com robot so that you can access it and kind of read my my full breakdown of Kickstarter once we've sent out the last package. But, you know, it's been a fun process. It's definitely something I would do again. In fact, we have as many as three Kickstarters planned out for the next 13 to 14 months. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think uh, I think that's a good point that what you what you mentioned, though, about how uh, we're uh, do you hear that? Did you hear a big gong just now? No, no, it's just me. That's I, good news. I can hear your heater ticking, but that's it. <laughs> Do you hear the traffic, by the way? Oh yeah, traffic is. Uh, listeners, that oh. is that is Tom. Uh, that he lives in a cardboard box by the the interstate, so that's what you're hearing there. 
down well, by listen, the 10. Man. <laughs> listen, man, comma, you're the guy this summer that was recording during road construction. So, but yes, th- this is a big change. I'm recording. I'm my, I moved my office into the garage and unfortunately there are cars that go around outside. They should be home having mint juleps, but instead they're driving, hopefully not while drinking their mint juleps. So yes, you hear the cars and you hear this little oil heater threatening to kill me because it's but, a uh, frigid 60 plus degrees there in california <laughs> i'm i'll be lucky if it's 40 in here but even so it's not the rockies like you i know it's yeah amusingly i just moved out of the garage i'm sitting in the kitchen recording right now <laughs> closer access to the beverages Indeed. but uh, anyway what, what i was going to say was that you um uh you you mentioned that you're going to do a more thorough or a thorough write-up of the kickstarter pros and cons or your lessons learned mm-hmm. put on the site and i wanted to mention just because we're sort of bouncing around and hitting topics we want to talk about uh in our podcast we're going to still keep producing unique content for the site and absolutely go into a little bit more detail when we have some more time to write it out so um even if we do a you know a mere two-hour review of a movie <laughs> there'll be plenty more of it on the site later i'm sure <laughs> But uh, anyway, so so you've been in <clears throat> burning the candle at all ends to try to deal with that and then prepare for the holidays and, and how you're going to resolve the last few cons of the year that you had and all that. Um, but it, but you hit some you, you hit some rough patches, right? You yeah. Talk about yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to go into my woes too much, but, you know, we've been doing this for it's a while market, now. I <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've been. We've been doing the the online sales stuff on Etsy and our websites for five and a half, six years now. And it's a simple pattern that on election years, particularly presidential elections, they – the sales drop, particularly during the election themselves because if people get online, a lot of the times they're either distracted by the election and they're not looking at things to shop for or they don't get online because they don't want to pay attention to the election. They don't want to be sucked into it. And so our sales usually drop and then post-election, they creep back up again to not quite the levels of a non-election year, but they certainly do creep back up. But this year, (laughs) they've creeped friggin' nowhere. Um, Our sales are down over 80% from previous years. And part of that changes Etsy has made to their search algorithms, how you show up on the website. Uh, They've really started doing this thing where they prioritize you finding new shops. So the older, more established shops like ours, you don't show up in the listings or in the search results as prominently. Yep. But the simple fact is is the election that just happened without going into the election shit because I hate politics, the people that are upset about the election are the group of people that buy from the shops that I have. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. The young democratic geeks, the lesbian, bi, racially – I it's we have a really diverse crowd of people that buy stuff from our shop, but it's not older Republicans. <laughs> it's not my family. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> and uh, as a result, our sales have been really, really slow this year. And they've started picking up a little bit now. But the problem is that being an online 
decor art uh, shop like what we do, you always have to be looking a couple months ahead because it's not something where I just go down to the printers and I'm like, give me six of these, baby. Uh, it's stuff we make by hand. I Like our key hooks we make, I cut, route, sand, paint, paint again, make – and then install the screws before we pack them. So you're talking weeks of Madness. process there. And normally our October, November is a good enough sales sequence that we can start buying the stuff ahead of time and making the stuff. But because our sales are so slow there, even though the sales are starting to pick up now, we don't have the mo- we didn't have the money to buy it ahead of time and start making it ahead. And there was this uncertainty as to whether we'd even need it in the first place kind of thing. So, right. you know, it's it's challenging and it's a really hard thing being our only source of income. Yes. Uh, knowing that, okay, we had this crappy month and as a result, we can't sell as much this month because we don't have it to sell. And we've known some other shops that let themselves get into that valley where they're like, oh my God, if I have these listed, I'll sell them, but I don't have them made, but I need the money, so I'm going to list them. And then they can't make them in time or they're sending them out weeks late. And that's something that is – Before a gift-giving season. That's right. a risky thing to do. Absolutely. I mean the cutoffs are posted. I mean you've got to order. You've got to have them shipped. And there are websites we've seen go under and actually be shuttered because of that where they take on more than they can reasonably send out in a legitimate amount of time. And that's something that we won't allow ourselves to do. If, which is which is great because it's a real pain in the butt. Yeah, if we say five days ship time, it's in the mail in five days. Maybe six depending on the weekend and if I have a migraine. But it's it's just been a rough month or two here. And so we're finally – like now we're at the point where we're like, okay – we're not going to cover that no interest for six months loan. We're not going to get our credit card paid off this month, but we'll at least cover bills. Let's go get some Christmas decorations and make some wassail and try and enjoy the holiday and enjoy wassail, the fact what's, that <laughs> what's a what's a what's a wassail? You don't know what wassail is. Is that a thing that happens outside of California? Because it sounds like it is. <laughs> it's a very traditional uh, English. Beverage that's usually consumed around the holidays. Uh, it's got uh, we make it with like apple juice, cranberry, raspberry, lemons. It's a it's a hot drink. We usually make it in the crock pot, um, and then you can add some brandy to it if you like your wassail touched a little bit. Um, it's you know that that one song. It's a wassail traditional touching. song. Here we go, a wassailing along. I don't know the words, but that song's about wassail. <laughs> <laughs> you know that sound of people unsubscribing? Hey, I think we heard it. Just, hey, so screw that you, Tom. A lot like, um, <laughs> so, uh, so I I've had mold wine and mm-hmm. made that sounds similar. It's much but better that's than mold wine. Heavy spices, right? And then, um, gosh, what is it that my wife and her kin make? Uh, I'm going to look it up. Sausage. I'm not looking. I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. Um, <laughs> Uh, Wassel is I think it's I think it might be German originally. Um 
And you know, yeah, it's got it's got a lot of the mold spices in it. It's got clove and cinnamon sticks and all of that jazz. It's an old English beverage. It's kind of a hot mold huh. cider, but it's got a little more like cranberry in it. So it's got a little it. tart. It's got the apple cider it. in it. It's really good, honestly. I have you, I love have it. you had Glühwein? Glühwein? No, I have not. Glühwein, which is it's the German. It's kind of like mold mold wine, but it's the German deal. Okay. But it's, you know, it, it, it these all sound very similar. I mean, that also yeah. has a lot of you know. There's there's the alcohol portion of it, but there's a lot of citrus and and stuff, and then a lot of spices and some sugar nice. and some other things. Then you warm it up and pound it, and and the most important parts of the brandy. So yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think Wassel's Nordic, possibly if I Wassel. remember right. So how's Wassel, how's Wassel spelled, by the way? W a s s a i l. Wassel. Yeah, it's it's very traditional. It's a mold cider. Okay. It's super right easy to make. Um, it's good even without the alcohol. I could send you the the recipe we do. It's a little more of an Americanized version that I've modified, but okay. super easy. You like huh. you literally just take your crock pot or a pot on the stove, throw the ingredients in, let it sit for a few hours, and you've got something that you can like come in from shoveling snow or I guess out there trimming your tomato bush. I don't, know, I don't know what you do in the, the wintertime in California. <laughs> yeah, I'm just not even good. Picking so, coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so Lemons, uh, probably, huh? Lemons. Yeah, right. So so here's my question. Uh is are you it's it says it's an apple. It's basically it's a it's a mold cider. Are you is a major component of it apples? I mean, like, are yes. you actually using apple juice or are you yeah, using... Yeah, we use uh, apple? apple cider. Uh, occasionally, I'll just use, like, the con- apple constant, apple juice concentrate, actually. Oh, no, the reason I ask this is I am sitting on crates of apples right now. <laughs> real apples. <laughs> uh, yes, you can use real apples. I don't have a recipe specifically for that, but it tastes you better find then. Yeah. Okay. Because... Uh, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to make an apple pie and we're going to make some carrot ginger soup, which we use a lot of apple in that recipe. And and that still leaves 1.75 cases of apples left. <laughs> so if I could make some alcohol and then just make that all go away, that sounds fantastic. Oh, yeah, baby. Um, yeah, well, so, this is now my, my life's goal to, to motivate all Robot Kraken listeners to indulge in the wassail this holiday season. There was a time when you got quite a bit of mileage out of making fun of the fact that me going from urban to semi semi rural uh life and buying a house and having a yard and so forth that you were so amused that I was dealing with gardening 101 and yard work basics that hasn't you're, stopped. You're, well, okay. <laughs> but you spent, you know, 57 minutes telling us about Vossel, so I think we're even. I made homemade mead one time too. Did you really? Yeah, we toasted make, at it with how, our wedding. How do you, how did you how do you do that? Lots of honey and thyme. <laughs> thyme T H Y M E. No T I M E because you got to no. let it ferment. No kidding. No. So you made that? Yeah. Did you do it intentionally? Yeah, yeah, we toasted with it at our wedding. We had a kind of semi-traditional Irish wedding when we got married. Where was that? Uh, up in the mountains. Of Ireland? No, 
in of Idaho. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've still not actually taken our honeymoon to Ireland that we'd planned 10 years ago. Sadly, we've never done our honeymoon. Well, you, you made pins, though. Alas. Yes, that's true. <laughs> we have so, made enamel pins. So that's, that's a fair substitute, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> you, you so, Chris, I've made I, me feel better about myself. So have you, have, you, have you drawn anything in the last month or two, and do you have plans to draw anything? I have drawn absolutely nothing in the last month. Did, no, wait, yeah? Yeah, I guess that's right, because you, <laughs> you did some Inktober stuff, right? I did a very minimal – in fact, I think the last Inktober I did was the con I went to after Ape. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and that was it. Like I, I shit out on Inktober really quick this year. Uh, part of it was that I got home and I had to dive into the Kickstarter stuff. And once Kickstarter was over, we were just between the the crappy sales and me being like sales, but also <laughs> needing to be pushing separate issues on stuff. Yeah, yeah it, it was just one of those things where I'm like, you know what? I'm not in the mood to draw. I'm getting thing, back around now, but well, it's just it's hard to draw when you're not in the mood, right? Yeah, it's the worst. That's the biggest fear I had about whether I would be a, a commercial artist or not. Mm-hmm. One of the main reasons why I, I shied away from it was I couldn't imagine trying to draw something good when I wasn't motivated to draw, and right. that's assuming I would get that work right. And then at the and then I was worried that it would it would kill my love of drawing because right. it would be it would always be work. And uh, and even to this day, I, I give myself pressure assignments, you know, like, oh, I need to work on our art jam or oh, I need to make some forward progress on my third rail stuff. And man, if I'm if I'm tired and and overworked and I just don't I don't have it in me, mm-hmm. even if I do sit down and force it, oh, the hot garbage I can generate. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I've made so many things that I've been just absolutely disappointed in because I feel like I should force myself to draw. And I'm not in the mood for it. And well, it's got to those, – those juices have to be flowing. Speaking of juices flowing, did you finish your delicious pumpkin ale? Wassel. No. <laughs> I, I did finish my delicious America's Original Pumpkin Ale. I'm, I've moved on to water now sadly because what? I have a really early day tomorrow and yeah. – Nonsense. I'm, I'm getting at, old, Tom. I broke at, at a least... bookshelf the other day when you got me drunk. <laughs> The other day, in our last in our last podcast, seven months so, ago, um, at least take it in shots so you can feel like you're. So, <laughs> you know, that's interesting about your process. And let me let me tell you something about you that you do and you know. Uh, when I watch you work on your little pieces when we're at the con table, like the the little uh, the you know Bat Boy stuff, mm-hmm. um, you're actually very fast. And you're very consistent and you have a good handle on the, the Copics and the Copics or the Copics. Copic, I think we decided. Maybe the Copics, the Copics. And, you know, you, you, you bang it out and it just looks perfect. Mm-hmm. However, your super stuff, mm-hmm. you have a different process on because you light, you light table and you pull references in and you composite stuff and you build it. And so – and and particularly because you're still doing a lot of that physically as opposed to digitally, right. um, it takes you a really long time to do a piece like a more conventional supers piece. It does. But those, but the but but the more whimsical or sort of exotic things that you do, which actually comprise a fair amount of 
your best stuff, mm-hmm. um, you can just sit down and do, which is really great. I mean, I still have a lot of, I mean, I did that whole wrong robots project, wrong right. robot project based on pen and ink and, and, and Copics and even, you know, scores of drawings in, I was still a little nervous every time I got close to the page uh, with an ink pen or a Copic marker because I'm so used to being able to dive right into digital work and, you know, right. make all my changes and, you know, all the efficiency of the computer applied to all of the flexibility of, of paste up from back in my father's <laughs> day. You're, you know, you're not getting any, you know, you're, you're really, you flow with those materials. And I really like that when you do that. I'm finally getting to that point. Like for the longest time, even something like that, I would have sketched it out and then lightboxed it to the Bristol and then done the inks. And I'm finally forcing myself to be like, no, Chris, pencils and grace. You can just draw over the top of them. (laughs) But there was a – for the longest time for me, it was like, no, I must be able to – recover this if i screw up with my inking kind of thing yeah so it's 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 a challenge definitely particularly for someone who's been so set in my ways and that's part of why i started doing the dapperkins those kind of cuter illustrations is i was like you know what i'm not trying to capture a likeness on this here let's just have fun with it and see if we can speed up a little bit well we had that shtick going at the cons where um and he you know, someone came and looked at your uh, your portfolio, and they're like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, look at uh, it was uh, it was Tyrion, right? They, or no, it was uh, John Snow. John oh, Snow. look at John Snow, and uh, look at that hair. And I and then I would, I would tell every person about how you and I would be touching base, and I'd be <laughs> on my third drawing, and you're like, "I'm doing more hair." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sadly, that's still the case with hair, but yes, yeah, <laughs> got to do my sort of. Uh, manga influenced, you know, here's the hair and then here's a shine. We're good. Right. <laughs> Call <Just> it done. <laughs> but then in this page, there's a million, million wispy wisps off the edge of it. But here, it's just this like Play Doh sheen. But then you have but, kind of the opposite problem too, because with your stuff, like if I'm drawing a building, I will just be like square box windows and you'll yeah. be like hold on i have to google earth this and then lay out <laughs> all of the vanishing points uh-huh. and i have to make sure that each brick has the proper amount of mortar in between <laughs> each and oh wait this isn't a real world building anymore i've got to erase it and start over and uh, like i'll walk past and you're like look i've created sacramento <laughs> created Sacramento. well let me digress because that's what we're allowed to do now um it's an interesting thing you mentioned about that so for people listening who maybe know us or know me outside of my sultry, my, my dulcet tones of my voice, I'm an architect. So you would think that my built environment stuff in my mm-hmm. art would be gangbusters, right? Because, of course, I'm designing architecture in my in my real life. So obviously that's going to happen, right? right? Well, here's a little known fact. Uh, most architects can't sit there and bang out a drawing of a building and make it look cool, right? That's a very specific, very specific focus, which is rendering. It's not in, in, in this era, it's all about banging it out on the computer and obviously doing, you know, fully digitally rendered images. And there's a whole different process to that. It's all CGI basically, but traditional art of which I actually studied in architecture school back in the 18th century, um, you know, th- there was a there was a real technique to drawing 
you know, hand drawing in perspective a building and then finding a way to uh, transfer that to watercolor paper and then watercoloring that and making these beautiful hand hand drawn and hand colored renderings of things in a very beautiful style. I mean, that's a that's something that even when they were still teaching that on a regular basis in school, some people were able to do it. And a lot of people were like, oh, my God, that's hard. Right. Right. So I was oddly enough in architecture school. I was you know, I came in with a comic art sort of background and I had model making experience. Right. Because I was doing all mm-hmm. this diorama and, and, and FX pre FX related physical like practical stuff. And then I come into architecture school and the illustration side of architecture was not the kinds of thing I focused on. Right. Right. Clean, clean, perfect, well composed, um, perfectly proportioned structures was not something I did a lot of drawing of before I went in. And then in terms of craft, I had spent all of my time learning how to make things look beat up and weathered and damaged and, and raw. Mm -hmm. And, we were being asked to build objects and things, models that were perfect. So, you know, I really struggled with a lot of that, frankly. It's just <laughs> not, my, not my toolkit. So when it comes to, like, for example, doing um, what was called Finity, um, my sequential art stuff, for example, you know, I'm sitting there drawing buildings and, I, and I'm going in. Brian Hitch was a big influence for me as far as sequential art goes, the types of uh, – establishing shots that he draws and and the amount of background detail that I really like along with Jeff Darrow and several others. I I always came at the page that I wanted a lot of depth in the background. I didn't just want minimal lines. I really wanted to show the environment of the people and not just be talking heads or whatever flying, flying super, super, super boy prime fists in the sky. Right. I wanted there to be some there, there, but boy, oh boy, did I struggle (laughs) because once I started drawing it, I was like, Okay, this is brutal. I, I think it's I think it's total hot garbage. Everything I've drawn, all the built environment that I've done compared to what it should be in my mind is frustrates me. And here's here's the double frustration is that people who are not in the architecture industry, other artists figured out years ago that they could use simple tools like SketchUp, right. which was not designed for this originally, but they could use it to build out some fairly rudimentary structures, set their camera, build their shots, print out that framework and then draw over that and then there they go they have Mm -hmm. they've done all that background and they've made the 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 building blocks of their backgrounds all ready for them and similar to how disney and and other uh animation companies started using computer effects and then line drawing over them right right iron giant and that sort of thing um well you know so i was way i was years ahead of that stuff in terms of, (laughs) of those tools but when I and before I started doing the sequential art project, I was like, well, you know, I'm going to build these this and that. And I had a number of sets that I had planned to build and a certain certain city components that I was going to build up. And that way I would do that exact process, run the camera through, then hand draw over it. But when it came down to it, I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to build the model. I, I'm not at work, you know. Right. <laughs> I just want to draw, draw comics, right? And so then I was like, well, I'm not going to build the model. I'm just going to draw the comics. And, you know, I got a little ways into it and I'm like, oh, I wish I built those models, man. <laughs> and, you know, like, here's the thing. And I've and I've talked to some artists and, and they agree with me. And, I, and, I, and then there are others and I still don't understand how they do it. But, you know, in in the types of cone of vision that most comic panels have. 
the perspective is really frustrating because the vanishing points are so far away. Right. That if you're going to physically draw it, you got you really have to have the drafting table, and it would really help if you have an extra large table surface because. <laughs> You know, you need to have that range and then you need to be able to hit those lines and, and then and then you have to physically be able to score a line that long. Yeah, your you know, point is art- like three feet past the edge of your paper kind of. It thing. is. And most artists today don't have – I mean many artists don't have a drafting table anymore. I don't. But most artists don't even have uh, parallel, parallel rules, right? right? T-squares. Very long straight edge objects that are used traditionally for um, technical drawing and perspective drawing. So, you know – it gets really frustrating, and then you look at some of the demos that um, our friend Darren Taylor put together years mm-hmm. ago on the on the forum, and he would show how he he would use digital tools to create his. You know, he came from the school of perspective, where you create the grid, right? You yeah. you make this the grid pattern of your perspective lines in a million directions, and then you just kind of you you trace over that, and then you find yourself. And those are great; those are wonderful perspective cheats. Mm-hmm. And there are whole there are tons and tons of books that are dedicated on that. Me coming from architecture school, that we did not learn it that way. We we actually had to you know set it up and and of course Jason Cheeseman Meyer he he had a book published about his his methods of perspective and they were about building it as opposed to using a grid. Right. But honestly, particularly as we focus more on the digital generation of this content, you have to use those grids. Absolutely. Because you're just you're not even you know I tried back when I was doing when I started moving from all hand drawn to partially digital to finally all digital mm-hmm. on Finity, for example. I tried on some of those backgrounds to build the perspective in, you know, in the software, in Photoshop, and then and this is before Photoshop actually brought in its own perspective tools and everything, right? This is just, <laughs> right. I'm drawing line, I'm making vanishing point, I'm drawing lines. Okay. I had to build these huge canvases in order to capture that stuff, and then, and then just to get to the content that I would eventually <laughs> cut out and put into the panel and it was just a nightmare. Pretty soon, yeah. I was just kind of—I was doing Sacramento, just like you. <laughs> so that was a digression about perspective in comics. But man, oh man, I'm jealous. When I, I'm envious when I see artists that do it um, successfully and 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 make it look so effortless. Yeah. And I know how much work goes into it. Right. right? Yeah. Some of these guys. Oh, their their stuff is just amazing. It's like okay, either they're they're putting the effort into it, or they've spent enough time putting the effort into it that they can now fake it in a panel and still have it look like they've put the effort in. But it looks so good. <laughs> well, you can fake. I mean, particularly if someone's close enough to objects that you don't have to see their their primary contours, you can right. you can fake the background. But you have to know you you have to be good enough about perspective to know what it needs to look like so that you don't break the rule. Because I see, I see comic artists make the mistakes all the time where, um, there are fundamental perspective problems that I know that if they had built the page traditionally, like if they built that scene and, and, and properly laid it out in perspective, they would see that they've made the error. Um, but you know, they winged it and then, and then, and then they have that disconnect, right? The guy's as big, the chair's as big as the guy or whatever else, you know, that kind of thing. The other thing I don't like though is, and I don't know what what the story is about this, but there was a period. It seems like maybe there's less of it happening now, but maybe 2008, 2009 through to maybe 2013 or 2014, there was this uh, surge of art that was coming through from a couple of artists in specific, where it appeared to me that they were relying on poser, 
mm-hmm. right? Yes. They're building the entire thing in Poser with SketchUp or something, and then they were inking, and then they were doing inking over it. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to me. Uh, uh, Mike Diodato has, seems to have done a ton of that. Yeah, I think I, and, especially for a, a certain period there, he seemed to really dive balls deep into it. And 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 Brandon Peterson, mm-hmm. both and both of those guys are really accomplished uh, pencil inkers, right? Like yes. the ink when they ink their own stuff, it's incredibly detailed. They really know it's not; they're not faking anything. Mm-hmm. But I think it was a product of efficiency to meet deadline and like, well, hey, I can do this, and I'm just gonna st- I'm gonna create this kit of parts and I'm gonna bang it all out, and this is gonna speed up what I'm doing and allow me to do more work. Yeah. But, but to me, the problem is as soon as you can tell – in my mind, as soon as you can tell that something has a, has a, you know, a, a computer-generated substructure, mm-hmm. it takes away from me. And Diodata's work in particular, um, you know, every guy had this over this, – this roided out sort of you know, Venice Beach muscle man sort of right. Zeke, every single one. And every – like the models were the same models. It was sort of the – the same problem Alex Ross has, right? Where he's got right. three three people that are his models, and so everybody looks like those three people. Diodato stuff was like that too. And then with Peterson, I remember, you know, it was the limitations of Poser or the limitations of the software he was using. The hands were never, you know, the whole thing about when you're drawing a hand and the palm, and you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm holding my hand up. If you, I don't have my camera on, you can right. know, you know, I'm doing it. Yes, but, you know, the, the hand is a very complex shape, right? And absolutely, the, the meat of the, the meat of the thumb as you bring it over, you're you're, you're making like the sort of taco of the, of mm-hmm. the where the metatarsals are or metacarpals are, and then, and then you have the way the hand, the fingers are formed. Well, those posing programs generally don't do that, right? No. They stuck in. This is a rectangular prism, mm-hmm. and then you have these 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 little components, and so. I would really see that rigidity in the hands. Yeah, it was like for a period in particular, he went from drawing hands like hands to drawing like Polar Express style detail in the hands. And it was the weirdest thing because it was a it was a notable disconnect from the way he'd been doing things just a couple months prior to it. Well, and you 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 hit the the nail on the head with that. It's the Polar Express problem. It's it's what they call the uncanny valley, right? Right. The biggest issue with those, with both of those artists, is where it looks, where parts of it look like it's look too realistic for what it should, and other parts don't look enough, and so it gives you a jarring feeling. Brandon Peterson, in particular, and he always was this way to a point, but. Particularly with the reliance on the CGI. Again, we assume. We don't know what they're really doing. <laughs> right. Maybe. Maybe. This is all hand-drawn. But he would he does a micro-inking style as well. Right. So he's got a, a, like hatching and feathering that's all like ultra-fine line weight. Triple lot, you know. Mm-hmm. And you're like – and so you have these large masses with very fine detail in them. Um, which is something that a lot of the image guys were doing for a while, and I don't mean the the um, the hash salad of, <laughs> of <laughs> yeah, those, the, like, the Silvestri style of right. yeah. But I mean, you know, there was definitely a, a focus with those guys with 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 ha- with using line work, mm-hmm. the um, visual texture, yeah, thing with line work, which is of course the opposite direction of what I like as a Magnolia fan, right? I want I want no line, <laughs> but. <laughs> But and certainly in my own work, I do very little of that kind of thing. But it's it's that's what is a disconnect for the Brandon Peterson stuff when he was doing that phase 
Right. Was that, you know, you had this, this guy jumping forward and it's like he's all the whole composition is that body. Mm-hmm. And yet it's all dead. It's all negative space except for the edges, which are highly textured. Yeah. Right. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. So, so, oh, so anyway, um, my earphone just yelled at me. Um, so <laughs> it did it again. Do you hear that? I, all just... I hear some cars going by. God damn it. So, um, <laughs> hang on. I have to smack myself. Technical difficulties. No, I had a max headroom kind of. My head just went plastic just now. Do you know what I'm talking about with the molded hair? <laughs> pod, 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 podcasting. So, so that was a fun little dive into uh, art technique. Yeah. I don't want to ever suggest that I'm criticizing an artist's work. I think there's a difference between liking or disliking it personally and being interested in the work and the in and being respectful of the effort that went into it and the fact that they're a professional getting paid to do a thing and whether they produce it in a you know slapdash manner because they're under the gun schedule wise as a professional I can tell you many many times you're given no time at all to get an amazing amount done and it's a you know it, you got it out the door and that's the thing right yeah so, huge range of reasons why someone's work may or may not appeal to you or their particular or particular phase of their work maybe does or doesn't. And I hate, I always hate as an artist to think that I'm, that I'm shitting on some other artist, but you know, some stuff, some stuff just doesn't appeal to me and some does. And sometimes people, a phase of their work or a, you know, whatever, maybe a direction that they went in, I didn't like, but Mm -hmm. no matter what, they're still doing an incredible thing for not enough money. Right. It's still amazing. So, yeah, I respect all these artists we talk about, even if I'm not totally on board. With even if they're, they're Greg Horn and they suck. No, well, <laughs> well, <laughs> Tom Land, was that, that Greg Land? Land. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few people that we can not like their art style or what they do, but they can still be people that other people enjoy. And we have to at least respect the fact that they found somebody that likes their crappy art style. <laughs> All of a sudden, everybody at the everybody at the con should get a medal. Everybody should get a ribbon. Participation. <laughs> participation awards. Craig Land, here's your participation award. And he's like, I don't need that. I make way more money than you. I know. I know. Just throw it in the back of the jag. You know? You're right. Well, anyway, so. Uh, that was so, the shipyard. <laughs> that was the ship. That was a thing that happened. Yeah. Wait, wait. So wait, I'm not done. So I'm drawing. I'm about to draw again. You're about to draw. What are you about to draw, Tom? Okay. What so have I have a number. Of, I have a number of things in production. As you know, I have a mm-hmm. list of about 50 pieces of art that have not been completed, as well as all my other stuff. But I have a number of pieces that are already in the. They're ready to be rendered or partially rendered phase. Like I've gotten the ink scanned and I've got them in Procreate on my iPad, or I did them all digitally on the iPad and I'm just not done. So I have a number of things that maybe in the next few weeks I can get wrapped up and get out there, which is great. Yeah. Um, and then I have some pieces that are either planned or in the early stages of penciling that are from more recent projects like Moon Knight that I have I'm working on and. Um, and uh, and so I have I've been mulling over the the art jam for this week. Mm-hmm. Those those of you those three listeners don't know what I'm talking about. I host an art jam on uh, Facebook DeviantArt and on the Third Rail's R3 forum. Uh, 
a long which is just running a, arc, Jim. Well, since yeah, right. Technically, yeah, two thousand five or so, but yeah. really kicked in two thousand six. But you know, we've been picking a new subject matter almost weekly um, for a for decade. A decade. <laughs> and we've had periods where it was forty people participating in the jam, and we've had many, many months where you know two people did. But the mm. you know. It's inspiration and it's fun. It's a chance to draw something interesting that maybe you always wanted to and you didn't think you had time for. Yeah. So, uh, sadly, once a year, we do a jam called the Vlad Fix Memorial Jam. And that's yes. because an artist named Vlad Fix, um, who was instrumental in the early days of the jam and was uh, a real mentor to many artists that were in our little art community. He was, um, yeah. He was, a, he was a friend of mine and he, he flew out and I got to... I got to spend some time with him and, and, you know, he was just an incredible guy, very, very kind, mm -hmm. um, man. And then he tragically had a, um, heart attack or something and passed away. Yeah, it seems and like so it we was complications from pneumonia with a heart attack or something. I yeah. can't remember. Yeah, he was something, but it, yeah. who knows? Right. Yeah. We're not, we, we not owed the information and it wasn't forthcoming because there was no one to give it to us because right. he lived alone. His family was not fully, aware of what he was doing and it was just a weird whole weird situation mm -hmm. but the point is he was a guy who was really into the thing about the art jams that I liked which is that it's about inspiring artists to come forward and put something out there even if it's not their best yeah. even if they think they compete it's not a it's not a competition like some projects are you know this is about everybody comes and just th throw it out there and let's have fun right yeah so he's really good about encouraging other people to produce their work he is the reason why I'm always going to comment on everybody else's contribution and say, mm -hmm. this is what I like about that. And that's what I like about that one. You see what I mean? Yeah. And that so was, that was one thing that he always did was not only did he find something that he liked that he could compliment and give uh, like upbeat, constructive criticism, but he was always encouraging you to try new styles and different ways of going at different art. He was – he encourages – he encouraged people to uh, kind of push outside of their comfort zones a bit, mm -hmm. but he also encouraged people to have fun and sort of indulge what inspired them, which yeah. is key. And he also really en enjoyed noir, mm -hmm. all classic film noir and comic applications of that. And he was also he, – he and I both had a common ground in uh, predominantly Silver Age Marvel, golden as well, but but really sort of sil Silver Age stuff. Yeah. And so – when he passed away, we created a memorial jam for him, and we've done this every year since where, you know, there's no rules to the jam. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's often a noir influence to it, mm -hmm. or, you know, you might go with, uh, you know, maybe some old school Marvel stuff, or maybe you start trying new tools or experiment. You know, really anything goes, but y y for, the, for those of us who were lucky, for those of us who were lucky enough to know him, the idea is you can imagine he would have looked at this stuff and said, you know, I really like what you did there. Yeah. Uh, that was a you know, that was a good effort. And so this year I'm going to do I'm working on I'm sort of building up the drawing right now, but I haven't I haven't finished the pencil work on it. But I'm doing another Rogue One inspired piece, um, wow. but with but with a greater emphasis on mood than the last one, which was much more a character study of uh, Jin Erso and uh, K2SO. This one will be a little bit more moody, but um, but I'm excited about it. I want to get it done. I just you know, I just, I mean, the ink is, the digital ink is still wet on the website and all that other stuff. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just transitioning over into being able to produce some content, but nice. so that's what I've got going. Nice. 
Yeah, yeah I have a a sketch out for the the jam that I. Oh, God knows when I'll actually get to it, but <laughs> we've been working on a couple of other things that I kind of have in the works. But I'm I'm doing some sketches for a cover for an uh, an author that I know that he wants me to redo one of his covers, which oh. is really cool. Uh, he's uh, Sean Hode. He writes a lot of pulpy horror stuff, and he has a kind of old fashioned crime road novel that he's a little unhappy with the cover on. And he's like, hey, can you do a new cover for me? So I'm reading his book right now in preparation of doing a new cover for it. And I've got a few little things floating around, mostly kind of gestating because I'm just I, – I still haven't quite gotten my groove back with the, the drawing. But yeah. it's getting there, hopefully post-Christmas. Well, but you know, for you, it will be interesting to see maybe next year if you have more, a little bit more time to draw. But it will be interesting to see how much of your physical – your physical process, you'll uh, transition to digital now that you have the Cintiq and you can do yeah, that. Yeah, that that really should make a difference for me, speed wise, if nothing else. Because I, you know, I talk a lot about how you, you know, I'm struck by you layering. Uh, again, I mean, I did a lot of that with uh, the first two chapters of Affinity, for example. I did a lot of compositing to build each panel, and I did it on the light table. But when I when I see the 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 peaks at your process that reminds me of watching my father do paste up mm-hmm. back in the day when that was a thing. Now we have programs that make references to uh, production art, and there's no one alive who understands what production art was. Right, <laughs> like right. the entire construct of InDesign and and these programs is using a anachronistic uh, tool set and 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 uh, interface that makes no sense if if you think about it. If you never actually had to tape pieces of art together and <laughs> photograph them. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but um, anyway, I, when I think about you doing all your constructs, like I remember you posting some of the background on one of your pinup girls and I was like, wow, that foot goes to this person and the legs there. And then this is that. <laughs> and then you redid this head three times. Yeah. Redid it, you know? And, uh, and I wonder, I mean, I, I did a lot of that physically, but then once I got more and more comfortable doing the work digitally, it really loosened me up. There are still, I mean, there's no question. I prefer to hand draw and hand ink. I love that I can do it all digital and I really love that I can do it portably, mm-hmm. but I prefer to do it by hand. But the one thing that the computer really helps with is stuff like that compositing. Yeah. All of that work that you would do, the more you get used to doing it on the Cintiq, you will be, it'll blow you away how much time you'll save. Yeah, I'm really excited about the idea of I, – I like you said, I still really like the physicality of the inking and it gives you a product to sell after the fact, which is kind of yes. huge. But the in-between stuff where I do the pencil sketch and then I do a thousand other pieces of that piece, being able to take all of those on the Cintiq and compile them and then print out a semi-final pencil drawing that I can then do the inking on will make a pretty big difference to me, I think, time-wise, if nothing else. I agree. I think it's funny that you and I each posted – while we're recording, we each posted Instagram photos of us recording. <laughs> it's that monumental that Robot Kraken is finally back in the studios. <laughs> uh, man, that's pretty funny. I don't know why. Sometimes Instagram won't let me tag. It, it won't let me tag someone the way I like it won't find them. That's odd. You know what I mean? You're deeply dapper on there, right? I am. At dapper? At deeply heck? dapper, yeah. 
the hey man? Uh, so I think that's pretty funny. I just saw yours pop in, and there you are. You have lots of rockets. Boom. Yeah, and you have you have the fancy you have the same mic, but you have the fancy mic setup. Yeah, I had to buy a anti shock mount for it because we were just getting. A little too exuberant with the bottle slamming in episodes of Deeply Dapper Dispatches we were recording. So yes, yes, yes. <laughs> there's so much like rage fueled high energy in your recordings. <laughs> there no, can be. yes, no. You know, <laughs> especially if my What's brother that? is present. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Potter, Potter and family. Every time you put that one in, I'm always like, oh yeah, I should have used Potter and family. <laughs> Um, so do you have a, you, I think we, we should do a quick little plan, plan pondering. I know we have lots to talk about over more time, but you know, what, what do you, what do you have in the near future? That's not production. Um, you know, you really the only thing I'm looking forward to at this point right now is a little bit of downtime. <laughs> yeah, really. I'm so fuck, I'm done with this year, man. Uh, <laughs> I, I am. That, I love that it took 2016 to kill Fidel Castro. <laughs> it did. I, yeah. I there's just there's just been one thing after another this year, and I'm really like 2017. The only thing I'm really looking forward to is just a little bit of downtime. Hopefully, we've we've cut back a lot of the little piddly dink cons that I was driving like 14 to 20 hours for that wouldn't make me any money. And we're like, you know what? Let's stay home, focus on the website, work on some books and some writing, try and finish my sequels that I'm finally writing. Right. Uh, but in, as far as non-work stuff, I'm really looking forward to Rogue One still. I've stayed away from any of the newer trailers except for one that played in 3D in front of fantastic crappy beasts and how to avoid them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it looked phenomenal in the big D 3D. Yeah. And so I'm really looking forward to Rogue One. Uh, beyond that, I, you know, wait, I, just... wait. I, I lost track. I'm sorry. I was, I have to be honest and name drop. I was conferring with, uh, accomplished comic creator Jeremy Hahn about uh hashtag Lego Lego problems. Anyway, uh -huh. so you were saying you were saying that uh you were saying that you saw what did you say you saw in in the big screen 3D that you loved? Was it the trailer uh, for Rogue Will the Beasts of a trailer of a suitcase or Yeah, that that movie was a hot pile of crap. Uh, was it really oh, They man. need to hire a screenwriter. You can't have a uh. children's book novelist write a screenplay and expect it to be a blockbuster screenplay. It was it was so by the numbers. Interesting. I like if she'd written the book and they'd hired a screenwriter to write the movie, it probably would have been all right. But it was a mess, man. It's it was a hot mess, and the uh, the extreme disconnect between different CG companies working was oh, no. so painfully really? obvious. Like you could see instantly especially in the 3d where they were walking on an actual street and when they were on a green screen street oh no i was it was terrible i could not believe how bad the effects and writing was in that movie <laughs> i was uh, i had i had stealth optimism for that i mean i i, I like honestly, the concept i like magic yeah. and the 20s new york thing well but... and that's the thing for me it's like i i really really like the design aesthetic for the harry potter stuff mm -hmm. although i've only seen like 2.5 movies 
we're just starting that with the kids now, right? Like we've just watched the first movie and my wife is what is reading the first book to them and all that. But right. You know, I'm watching what everyone will argue is a pretty bad, pretty bad movie, right? The first few Harry Potter mm-hmm. movies are not great. Correct. Um, at the same time, I think that for kids though, and they are age appropriate, all those movies are age appropriate for each of their years of content, right? Yeah. I think that the Harry Potter movie was a great movie for kids mm-hmm. and what I appreciate about it was the set design and the costumes and how they realized that world so vividly in a way that apparently we've talked about this before. I know I talked with uh, your wife about it, but you know, the most of the readers of the books felt like, well, that seems to match what I was imagining. Yeah. Which I think is astounding that that could happen. Um, so this wildebeests in the suitcase uh, you know, what I saw there was, well, there's a lot of that sort of tight, um, consistent design style, but now set in the, in, in an old timey way. So that's right. Up well, my the problem was yeah. though, is that it never felt American <clears throat> either. That's a weird thing. I mean, thing. like, like all yeah. the, the stuff was like just a weird British equivalent that happened to be in New York city. And I think that was one of the downfalls of them having her write a screenplay when she's not, not a screenwriter. And she's not American. <laughs> and she's not American. Yeah. I mean there's literally the Ministry of Magic. It just happens to have a slightly different name. And it, it was silly. But it has no matches though. There's no See, magic. That's so ridiculous to me. Uh, OK. The so, guys on Weekly Planet said – they said that that was one of the biggest disconnects for them was was uh, that was a, a, a writer who's not familiar with – the U.S. imagining yeah. what a domestic U.S. expression would be like and being completely wrong. It would be like an alien writing it, right? Well, right. And no, you know, no the, American would say no match. <laughs> yeah, sense. and the, the simple fact is, is we're talking about a slang thing in the wizarding community because it's not like it's, oh, this is an American slang thing. This is a wizarding slang thing. So they probably would just use the same friggin' thing that the, the European ones did. Why? Yeah. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. yeah right. Why wouldn't they just call him Muggles? I mean, really. Um, I love Colin Farrell and everything he does. Yeah. Um, did he pull off his end of it, or and I and I and I had the end spoiled in, in something, but yeah, uh, he barely has a part to be honest. Like he's yeah. he stands there and looks stoic or angry Ooh, like or that, confused. And, you know, I, I used to not like him. I've come around and I like really? him a lot more now. And I was not sure how I'd feel about Eddie Redmayne. Right. I liked him in it. But they just had this – it was really the script. Like the directing solid. It's the same guy that did the last two Harry Potter movies and he did a right. great job, Yates. Uh, but my wife is a huge Harry Potter fan. Like right. she owned the books where people would evaluate the importance of socks in Harry Potter. Yes, sir. And that's how I am with she, heat. <laughs> she walked out of this movie and she's like, ah, maybe we'll watch the next one in the second run theater. But if it's not any better, I'm done. Wow. And that's my I mean, my wife is she owns all the Harry Potter Legos. And yeah, right. I mean, she is. It takes a lot to turn target off. market and right. they just drop the ball. And she's she's writing a novel that takes place in the 20s and she writes right. magic fantasy stuff. So, I mean, this was as up her alley as humanly possible. And she hated this movie. Well, but as a tangent, though, there are there are many fandoms that are extremely critical, mm-hmm. right? The basement armchair smashers and right. nothing's ever good enough and hypercritical and all this. And there are some fandoms that are very forgiving. Mm-hmm. And my sense has been that the Harry Potter fandom is very forgiving. Like, you know, 
the greasy substitute teacher comes in with the Harry Potter uh, scarf on and everyone goes ape shit. Because that's okay. Yeah. It's Harry Potter. Everything's great. Yeah. So for, to for a, Harry to Potter a point, fans, yes. Yeah? No? You think I'm wrong? I, I, I don't know. That's I've, my outside view. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of Potterheads and – some of them are pretty meh, Potter. Everybody loves Potter. And some of them are a lot more critical of it. And if you go to like Pottermore, the website, the sheer amount of like almost Dungeons and Dragons geek quality, uh, like in-depth examination of things, this just falls flat even from that point of view. It just doesn't make oh, any see. sense to me. So I don't know. And I'm – What's that? But you were saying you were saying though in this tangent you were saying that while you were there you saw the trailer for Rogue One yes. big screen and you were like okay my gosh yeah it looks yeah. the the 3D and it looks phenomenal and seeing the classic stormtrooper outfits yeah. and the tie fighters and the adats in 3D on the big screen <sighs> it's so great. I can't so I got wait my tickets. to see that. I got my oh, tickets nice. and, and I got them at the Alamo again, you know, that's nice. just like, you know, last year Alamo Draft House in San Francisco, their grand opening was for Force Awakens, right? Right. And so this was the perfect sort of perfect storm of new theater, but in a, it's a it's a beautiful restored old-timey theater. You've got this very um entertaining environment where you're sitting at little booths, little benches, and or you're in seats with these little tables and you have bar and and very good food service during the movie and they do this whole reel of before the movie that's curated content based that's on so that awesome. movie that's whimsical and you know it's this whole thing and you tile that tie that to all the nostalgia you have about Star Wars and all your anticipation about the new stuff and it and it was like a perfect package so we had to do we had to do Alamo again there it's a 2D theater Right. So I got 2D tickets, but I know I'm going to see it like two or three times, and I don't care. So <laughs> I, I'm going to do that one 2D, and then and then uh, <clears throat> and then see a 3D one later. But what's funny is I, you know, the, the tickets went on sale, and and you know they had some things saying, okay, Sunday at 10, they're going to go on sale, mm-hmm. and around 10, 18 or something, like we were neck deep in a project here at the house, and then my thing came up and said, okay, the tickets are available, and I'm like, oh, okay. So I popped in and I said, okay, I want to buy some tickets, and it says, okay. You're 3,712 in line <laughs> and we'll let you know when you have your turn and you have 10 minutes to complete your purchase. And I'm like, oh, wow. well, that sucks. Now, it reminded me of the iPhone thing in the most recent launch for the iPhone 7. They had it, you know, once their servers were overloaded, they started giving people um, places in line kind of thing. But it was right. done by email. So you, you couldn't lose your you couldn't lose your place. I think there was a window of time, like a day or something. But, you know, you basically could get up in the morning and do it. Oh, okay. Right? Do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you had that – that there was something – somehow there was something allocated for you even though they don't know what you're going to buy. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, in this case, it was sort of like you know, when your time's up, you know, this screen will change and then you have 10 minutes. So I was like, well, I'm never going to have a chance because – you know, 30, 3,800 people or something. Right. It's going to be, I don't know how long that's going to take them, but I'm going to be asleep. But anyway, 25 minutes later, I happened to be going through and closing some tabs and I saw things saying, you have two minutes. I'm like, what? <laughs> so they burned through 30, 37, 3,800 uh, individual buyers Holy in 20 crap, minutes. That's insane. And that's a centralized, that was a centralized server uh, 
covering all of the Alamo draft houses in the U.S., which is, I don't know, seven or eight theaters, right? Wow. So I was able to get the tickets and, and get it done. But, yeah, I know I'm going to see it two or three times. <laughs> I've, I've been um, trying to do the blackout again. Like, I haven't seen any of the trailers. I've only seen the first two, right? Mm-hmm. That first one that was great, and then the second one that added a little more to it, whatever, and put, you know, a little uh, Darth Vader glimpse at the very end. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And I'm really desperately trying to avoid everything until I walk in there just because I want that, I want that pure experience. But Me too. Yeah. I'm more excited about Rogue One than I was about Force Awakens. I really am too. Like I am just super pumped about pretty much everything about this movie. I think it looks great. I think it's going to be really fun. And yeah, I'm, I can't wait to see it. There's um, one difference I think is – I thought that the design work on Force Awakens was very, very, very good mm-hmm. in taking the legacy design work of the first of the original trilogy and then bringing it forward and making it feel like you're seeing something 30 years later in the same universe. Yeah, totally. Um, but the designs themselves, a lot of the designs themselves weren't – they didn't knock me out of the park in the sense that they weren't so – like. They were so beholden. Well, I don't know how to want to put it. Like, <clears throat> I loved Kylo Ren's design. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. It was a great nod to Vader, but it was also its own thing. There was a lot of choices that I liked in texture that I I really liked. Yeah, Ray Ray is very muted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Poe Poe and those guys. Poe's jacket was cool that Finn is wearing, but the, but otherwise they're wearing, um, you know, just rebel stuff. And then. The stormtroopers, the stormtrooper redesign was very successful, mm-hmm. but you know, then they spent the rest, the whole rest of the movie trying to recreate or do that that circle thing, right, the ring thing, where they're going back right. and doing the same thing. When I look at this one, this one's much tighter in continuity than Force Awakens was, in the sense that it has to be believable that this is happening in some fairly narrow window of time before New Hope, right? The real. So, you know, even as the prequels failed in, you know, a mere 20 or 30 years and like everything looks wrong. <laughs> I mean, those designers were amazing. The designers are great. The work they did was great. And I actually like a lot of it visually. But there's a big disconnect between not just the is it clean or is it dirty, but also some of the design logic looks right. And then some of the design logic looks way different. And while we can argue that there are different planets and. You know, they have these different design cues, but it, it did feel like the designers on the prequels went way out there and some of their designs just didn't. You couldn't like I cannot take Clone War tanks and clone, and those walkers and things and say, well, that design will evolve into Imperial Adats. Yeah, there's you know not a logical progression at all. Right. They, they were little there was a little too much like here's the toolbox. Go crazy. Yeah. Right? So. So the onus on Rogue One is it's even tighter. They got to make it interesting, but it has to look like it could be just right before New Hope. And everything we're seeing, it looks like it does. Man. Yeah, yeah, it looks really great. They've got that that aged, rough look that the first one had, and I think it looks really fantastic. And they've introduced new material. Granted, they're still. I mean, they are just like Force Awakens. They're trading on the Macquarie concept mm-hmm. art. Which I'm happy about, but they're they're introducing new material that by and large looks so consistent that you feel like I mean after seeing it in enough promo material, even before my blackout, mm-hmm. 
it starts to feel like it's always been there, right? right. So, for example, K2SO is so internally consistent as a as a droid that it's I find it incredulous that I've never seen another one look like that in my mind's eye. Like my brain <laughs> has decided that those have been walking around, right? Yeah. And and while the Death Trooper's helmet has some lines to it that are a little bit weird mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, uh, Stormtrooper helmets have always been very um, curved and then they have a lot of faceting that is a little odd. And I mean, even the even the scout riders from Return of the Jedi on Endor and they have that long ver- they have that vertical kind of shaft that like um, Knight's helm mm-hmm. shaft of negative space in the in the center of the of the thing. And they have the goggles and that's replicated in the beach trooper helmet. Even though that has more hard edges, it's not faceted. It's not high, hyper detailed. And the Death Trooper's helmet looks a little detailed, but it still looks because of the shoulder pad and some other stuff. It still looks consistent and it looks more interesting than if they had just painted Stormtroopers black. Absolutely. As as the old con, con extended universe continuity did. And uh, and honestly, my favorite design is those Beach Troopers, man. I think those guys look amazing. <laughs> yeah, they really do. It's like I wrote on robot-kraken.com, which is an excellent website that everyone should follow. <laughs> I said, aim for the thighs. <laughs> you only have one chance <laughs> because they have no thigh armor, right? Right. But, uh, I, those guys just look amazing. I think that looks great. And then I love all the other stuff. Like I love the the Rogue One um, agents mm-hmm. in imperial costume like trying to sneak on and you know yeah and how the, and how they've processed that and i love some of the other stuff that, that we've seen come out of it so you know i was pre-sold to love this movie but i cannot wait it's only a couple weeks away man yeah yeah we will we will definitely have to talk about that one since we just talked for like 27 minutes about the two trailers we've seen <laughs> the two <laughs> out of the seven that they've had but, uh, you know, I, I honestly do wish that they had kept uh, Vader out of the trailers and just Me let too. people be surprised. They didn't need whatever marketing knee jerk there is to just reveal everything in in the pre-release content. I don't understand. But couldn't they have kept that as a secret? Yeah. I mean, we all knew it was going to happen, but couldn't they have just surprised us? And now they're saying they've even released more sort of spoiler evidence that other characters are in. And I just didn't need to know any of that shit, you know? No, not even remotely. So you saw Doctor Strange, right? I have. And you did it in your podcast. You compared Doctor Strange with Doctor Dipshit, or what was it? Hey, Doctor Mordred. <laughs> so I'm supposed to see that on Saturday. So okay. I'm do this now, so we'll be able to cool. talk about that a little bit more. Um, and then, uh, do, what's the next movie in your queue? Do you think it's going to be Rogue One or? Uh, realistically, yeah. I mean, we went and saw Moana a couple days ago. And I don't I think, think I like that more than you did. I, I actually really enjoyed Moana. I didn't like it as much as Kubo, but I cannot wait to see that. And I haven't. It, it looks a little heavy for my kids, and I can't decide yet whether they're ready for it. It's got some darkness to it, definitely. I mean, all of the Leica films do. Sure, but it's 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 a wonderful movie. Is it darker than Big Hero Six? I haven't seen Big Hero Six. Remember? Really? Yeah talked about that before yeah we have you need to see it (laughs) (laughs) that's weird because last time we talked about it you said i didn't need to what did i no you didn't nonsense (laughs) happen at all that's a great movie i'm 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 livid that we don't have another like a sequel to that coming out yeah Uh, speaking of which okay but i mean because we you know but cars three have you seen that that early teaser terrible 
what are they doing, man? I don't know. I I have no interest in cars anyway, but that trailer teaser thing is so bad. But who's the market? I hillbillies. I don't know. They're like (laughs) these guys are ruling the country now. Let's give them a NASCAR commercial. Well, no, but I mean, you know. your gross generalizations about the majority of this country aside, <laughs> you know, it's nice to see Disney take on the serious themes of tragedy. Wait a minute. They do that in all their movies. But right. the point is, why did it, why did it go hyper realistic? And why do we have slow mos of him crashing? And that's know. all you get. And it's I don't know. The logic of it's just so weird to me. And we covered this ground in. We covered it in the spinoff planes. Right. Did you see that? No. I haven't okay, even so, seen Cars 2, dude. I have okay. no interest well, in living vehicles. I understand. <laughs> but so they did a spinoff planes and they went direct to video. But the premise was a crop duster that ended up being able – kind of entering into the racing circuit and becoming a racing plane. But he – I don't remember if he has like fear of heights or it's some other issue. But basically he could freak himself out. I think it was fear of heights or maybe it was fear of lows, whatever it is, lack of heights. Mm-hmm. Something about it was that he could freak himself out and screw himself up and crash and then get, and then he's damaged. And now what is he supposed to do? You know, OK, so we've seen that now at least two or three times. Mm-hmm. Right. The wounded hero in a, in a Disney movie. So I, I don't know. I don't know. And the hyper realistic level of rendering in that trailer. I just. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, it's, so it looks silly. Okay, and now a word from our sponsor. Who? <laughs> it's a surprise. You listen to this, okay? You'll find out who our sponsor is. You don't even know anything about the radio business, do you? Take off. I arranged everything. I I arranged it all with our sponsors, and You're you li- you were in the John while I did that. Oh, take off! You're yeah, lying. He's lying, an, everybody. For about an hour, we'll, I ask you. We'll the be right back. What does someone do in the John for an hour? Huh? Take off. Deeply Dapper Dispatches podcasts are all brought to you by Deeply Dapper, of course. Whether you're looking for geeky decor, strange and unusual nerdy soap, or a piece of fine art for your walls, Deeply Dapper is your answer. Everything we make is handmade by my wife and I, and have been featured on sites like Wired, Reddit, Shut Up and Take My Money, BuzzFeed, and more. Give the gift of geek or class up your own home with DeeplyDapper.com. You can also find us on Etsy or one of our many Comic-Con stops around the western United States. Deeply Dapper, better living through tentacles. Now, back to the show. The world is coming undone. Imperial flags reign across the galaxy. We have intercepted a coded Imperial transmission. It indicates that a major weapons test is imminent. The message was sent by your father. We need to know what it is and how to destroy it. This is our chance to make a real difference. If you're really doing this, I want to help. Good. Good. I've been recruiting for the rebellion for a long time. We destroyed our home. I fight the empire now. I fear nothing. All is as the force wills it. Every 
Every day they grow stronger. What will you do when they catch you? What will you do if they break you? If you continue to fight, what will you become? Are you with me? All the way. May the Force be with us. Welcome to our next segment of Robot Kraken. Tom, Hi. are hey, you there? I, I am here. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? It's it's like we were just talking, except for where we weren't just talking, because <laughs> weeks have passed since we last recorded, but for our 333 listeners, it's as if a mere four seconds, no, no, three seconds, what am I thinking, has passed it. So, it's more likely yeah. 33 seconds, depending on the voice clip, but yes. <laughs> okay. that, that sounds fair. Um, this gives us another opportunity to do a, a drink check, which we love to do, right? Yeah, so I wish I had something it? more exciting than I do, but... <laughs> are, are you are you spanking the monkey? I am actually not spanking the monkey. <laughs> that is not the name of our drink segment. <laughs> it's a it's a variant I'm testing out. No, you don't like it. And I I don't I don't know how I feel about spanking the monkey with you over the internet, Tom. That's a little weird. Well, you know, these days with the surveillance, they already knew what you were doing. So <laughs> we don't. What are you really, drinking? Um, you know, it's, sadly, I'm drinking just a, a a Dr Pepper with a little bit of Kraken rum. So we we've got a Doc Ock going on here. Uh, a Doc Ock, okay, great. All right, well, I'm uh, I'm really stepping up my game tonight. I'm I'm drinking my uh, my current go to evening cocktail, which is called an Old Timber. Old Timber. You're asking me what an old timber is, aren't you? I am. What is in an old timber? So an old timber is a variant on an old fashioned, and the key difference here is it's made with fernet. What is fernet? Fernet is a liqueur. Well, yeah, yeah, it's a liqueur. Um, fernet's made from well, twelve hand-picked ingredients. <laughs> that's not helpful. No, that's so not at I, all. So I don't remember what um, you know. This is another one of those things. Why was I not more prepared? I'll listen to this later in the car and be like, Tom! But uh, anyway, uh, you know, Fernet's a liquor. I can't remember exactly what the primary root of it is, but it's generally bitter and minty. Interesting. Okay. All right. And so some people have it as an aperitif, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I'm not very pro liqueur aperitif person particularly, especially after I was dragooned into drinking too much schnapps in Switzerland. But um, – I do like bitters and sours and things all blended together. I like all those things. So what this is, is I have some bullet rye. No, oh, this is redemp- This is redemption. Redemption. I have it in my old decanters. <gasps> You're not drinking bullet? Shocking. Well, you know, I, I drink a lot of different um, bourbons and ryes. Bullet's just my go-to. Right. In this particular instance, in my sweet, sweet uh, 30s decanter, it's, I think, a redemption or something. And then, um, so we start with... Nominally, an ounce and a half of rye whiskey, but you know I'm just winging it. So here we go. An eyeball. Oh, you know I should get this really close to the microphone for maximum insouciance. Okay, here we go. Mm. Oh yeah. Ah, uh, now I have to pee. <laughs> That's good stuff right there. <laughs> okay, and then we do a quarter ounce of fernet, 
and a quarter ounce of triple sec. So ah. it's supposed to have that. Um, that it's supposed to have a velvety, orange, and bitter component to the to offset the the rye. Okay, and I've been actually making this with um, more fernet than triple sec because it's triple sec is so sweet, right? And then also I, I've actually been adding um, lemon juice and a garnish of lemon to mine when I make it in the proper environment. But here, <laughs> I'm I'm in the Grafas doing this, and it's a balmy 45 degrees in here, <laughs> and I'm adding ice to this. <laughs> yeah, as you say, you don't really even need to add ice to it. <laughs> man, oh man. Uh, in hour seven of this uh, podcast, you're going to have to check for my vitals. <laughs> I'll just keep going. It's all yeah. good. Yeah. Um, there's no way. There's no way you would know if I was paralyzed. Okay, so here we go. I'm gonna do a sample. Mmm. Mm. Delicious. So you make I'm your using... drinks seem so much more impressive than mine. Well, just in this instance, you had those. Well, we had one where you were making ecto cooler cocktails, and I was like, <laughs> "That's just referential and everything." So. I'm using Fernet Francisco, which is the first domestic Fernet, and it's made here locally, as you know, um, and it's milder than uh, imported Fernet. Okay, so uh, it's a okay. little smoother. Okay, and I think it sort of helps it. But anyway, delicious. It's called. Yeah, yeah. I only drink it old imported Fernet. I see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's what I'm having—a delicious old timber, and I'm nice. going to have. I'm going to have 17 of them while we record. That great. sounds excellent. Are you going to make us listen to every single one? Oh man. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> Pause, mix, <laughs> spill, shatter glass, dry. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna do a cracking a crazy robot review, right? Yeah, yeah. It's That's the plan. It is unbelievable. We were talking thirty three seconds ago, plus four minutes, that. Uh, we had all these movies that we saw and shows over the year, and because of the hectic fall con schedule for you and our other commitments and all of the the mishaps we've had mm-hmm. holiday season, we haven't had a chance to really talk about many of them. No, we really haven't. Uh, so you know, it's kind of funny that we're 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 recording the movie that one of the movies we just recently saw but we have this backlog of you know yeah we have an obscene amount of stuff that we we need to do like micro reviews of or something along those lines but the 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 most important movie is the one we need to talk about today because it's the best this was the movie that i waited all year for and and where with force awakens i was optimistic but based on the track I, I knew it was going to be good but I mm-hmm. also knew that it could be garbage because you never know and I'm just, I just chose to think it was going to be wonderful and then I loved it yeah, but yeah. with this one I decided to have my expectations high right <laughs> so I went in with high expectations and said you know <laughs> kind of a doom to fail scenario when you're in a theater right going in low you know it's a win win right. going in high there's a high risk of failure and I have to say I, I enjoyed it immensely yeah, I was, uh, I was one. really going into to Rogue One almost more excited about it than I was 7, which wasn't what I expected. But the more I saw of it, the more I was like, oh, my God, this looks really good. And uh, luckily, I, I think it fulfilled my expectations, definitely. I, you know, I tried to do a blackout that last month in some of our previous recordings. We talked about that a little bit, but my failures to, to, bla- <laughs> to it black impossible. it out. It was It was everywhere. Yeah, and I only, I stopped on the second of four trailers, right? Mm-hmm. But but 
you know, I was still seeing stuff all over the place. And, and I was really frustrated. We talked about it before. We felt like it was unnecessary to show Vader in the commercials. Yes, like absolutely. We didn't, we didn't need to ruin that for people. It would have been more interesting for it to have been a surprise. But I almost felt like I almost felt like that was Disney hedging their bets a little bit and saying, well, this is a weird, you know, spinoff film. It's not in the same, uh, you know, it's not in the Pantheon series. Mm-hmm. And it has a darker tone, and it has unfamiliar characters, and so we need to we but need to look, pump it up. There's with still something. Star Wars in here, yeah. There is the Star Wars in this, yes. That's yeah, right. yeah, and I think you know, I I think there's positives and negatives to that, but I think from a layperson's standpoint, there were yeah. a lot of people that couldn't wrap their brain around what this movie was when it took place, that kind yes. of thing. And I think for them, they really didn't have any choice but to throw somebody like that in there so that these guys could the, – the lay person could be like, oh, Darth Vader kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So I saw it at the um, the Alamo Draft House, which is the same theater that I went to a year ago, almost to the day. Same mm-hmm. day of the – same day of the week, same scenario. It was the Monday following the Thursday night kickoff. And it was the – and. Episode seven was the film that opened this theater, right? And so there were Alamo draft houses in other states. Um, but this was the, a big restored theater in San Francisco, and it was a big deal. There was other theaters at this point that were already starting to offer food and drinks. But this was the – I didn't know it yet when I went a year ago, but this was the one that was going to restore the magic of going to the, the- going to the movies instead of doing right. it at home, right? There was other options for having assigned seating, seeing a um, – you know, having some food and drinks and, and everything. But this was the one where, you know, you walked in and you felt like it was an event. And that first viewing of episode seven just blew me out of the water with all of the, you know, they had an hour or 45 minutes of, of new original con like new content curated before the movie. And, and then, you know, the delicious menu they had and the drinks and everything else. And it was very, very expensive, but it became like, well, this is a thing. Right. If you want to, if you want to have a really, um, you want to be really entertained and have an event out of watching a movie this is the way we're going to do it and otherwise we wouldn't go through all that expense and effort right 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 absolutely so so here a year later and we're doing the you know we're doing the the same thing again it's the same theater it's the same scenario it's a year later it's another star wars film Mm -hmm. and the the parallels were very interesting to me because they also had curated star wars content it was also, you know, it was a lot of hype, and people were very excited in the theater. Nice. But, um, but it was all new and different, so it was fun. It was sim- It was like very um, evocative of that first experience, and just mm-hmm. as exciting. But, um, but it was different, both in the content and also just being, you know, we now knew what the what what we were expecting, and it was great. Nice, nice. What about you? Uh, we just went to the the local theater here. We don't have a lot of choices in Pocatello. Um, Unless we want to drive upwards of four hours to get to some different theaters. But, you know, they've they've got a pretty decent big D, 3D theater. So we went and saw it in that. And, you know, nothing special. Uh, we went on the cheap day. Uh, Tuesdays here, if you go in, you it's like three or four bucks off the ticket. Plus they do um, popcorns, four bucks. You can get a soda for four bucks, which is obscenely cheap for movie theaters. <laughs> yes. And then they have a, a bucket that you can fill for four bucks throughout the year. But on Tuesdays, 
you get the large popcorn for the same price, which theoretically it's about the same amount of popcorn, but they're crazy on Tuesdays. They're like, hey, you want us to fill that popcorn bucket with this bag and then refill it and then fill that bucket and then refill it again? Here's seven <laughs> gallons of popcorn. It's, it's the weirdest thing. Like like the rest of the ye- week, they're super strict about how much popcorn you get. And then on Tuesdays, they're just like, carte blanche, popcorn. So, like, like we went with my buddy Devin and my wife, and then Devin's uh, friend came along, and we basically each had our fill of popcorn and took popcorn home. It was a little ridiculous. Uh, but, yeah, part of that is just that we didn't eat a lot of popcorn because we were enjoying the movie. Well, you, you and I had almost the exact same experience, except I was having deviled eggs with trout in them. That's super weird, man. <laughs> That's terrible. I think I that plate, that's I think that's that not something I've eaten, bucks. period, let alone at a movie theater. <laughs> that There you go. You sh- there, we've just, um, in a nutshell, showcased the difference between San Francisco Entertainment and Pocatello right. Entertainment. My deviled eggs platter uh, paid for all of your popcorns plus your home popcorn. Oh, yeah, without question. Uh, so let's see here. We paid... Oh, it wasn't that bad, all things considered. I think it cost us like thirty bucks for the two of uh, for the two of us. I didn't pay for Devin and his buddy paid for their tickets separately, but it was relatively cheap uh, for a three D big screen one. And yeah. there weren't many people. Tuesdays is kind of it, it's their cheap day because nobody goes to the movies on Tuesdays. So why is that? I don't know. It's I it's I think it's just timing of the week. I don't know. Uh, Like, I've been to the movies on Tuesdays really regularly because it's super cheap. And most of the time, it's me and and some elderly people in the front somewhere. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, when I saw Magnificent Seven, there were four other people in the theater, and all of them were easily twice my age. (laughs) That's one of the things I like when I go to... um... Two movies with uh, a couple of my buddies. We'll we'll go after kids are asleep, and so yeah. we'll hit a, a 10 p.m. show. And you know the theater is very minimally filled. Yeah, compared, I'm not talking about Friday night either. You know, middle of the week, Tuesday right. night, 10:30 or 11, and maybe four or five people in the theater, which is great. That's the way to do it. <laughs> given given the amount of um, bourbon that was consumed before going into the theater, probably a good idea. It was <laughs> so Rogue One. This is one of those deals where. You know that anybody listening to this already knows what this movie was, probably saw it. So I think we could just sort of talk about all the good stuff and yes. not stuff and just Spoilers, have fun. Spoilers, don't, uh, don't sure. listen if you haven't seen the show, this segment. I'll, I'll throw a skip ahead option on here if you haven't seen Rogue One yet. So you know where you can fast forward to because, I, I, yeah, we need to be able to talk about spoilers on this. Hey there, everybody. To avoid spoilers for Rogue One, skip ahead to the three hour and 33 minute mark in the episode thanks i feel like um because there's a lot of there's a lot of elements to to the story and the way it ties into the rest of the continuity and Mm -hmm. and some of the directing and editing choices but i i'd love to start with the cast because this was a lot of work put into carefully casting a an ensemble Mm mm-hmm of people in a in the most popular, best known franchise in movie history, who will all be immediately killed. So, <laughs> you know, you know, back before the franchise movie, 
you know, every casting choice was this way, right? Right. You pick, pick the best people, and they last. And whether they lived or died at the end of the movie, they it, the movie ended, and that was it. Yes. But you know, in the Star Wars universe, this was exceptional in that they really did commit. Mm-hmm. St- you know, setting aside the editing, you know, some of the 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 choices later on to reshoot some of the scenes and possibly soften it up, which you really couldn't tell. Right. But uh, you know, I was fascinated that there was such a strong cast that I wanted to see in more movies. Like I wanted this to keep going. Yeah. In a relatively short amount of time, they made you emotionally connected to a lot of people in this show, including the robot. (laughs) Sure. Well, a lot of people I've heard review this um, said, Oh, there wasn't much characterization except for like two. And I didn't really care about these people and it was too frenetic. And I'm just thinking, you know, this is people trying to find ways to pick at it. Or, or, or I have the, you know, I have the the blinders on, but uh, you know I thought it was fantastic. Felicity Jones, I I do think it's interesting that they have this long string of British brunettes mm-hmm. uh, in the Star Wars universe, or British sounding brunettes if you include New Hope, right? <laughs> and only New Hope. <laughs> I read recently in that slew of uh, tragic post mortem articles about Carrie Fisher that mm-hmm. um, that she had affected that accent in the. It's almost that transatlantic accent, but uh, she had that in New Hope because she had just been to a to a school overseas where they were. She was focusing on on uh, poise and articulation in accent in her vocal work. Oh, really? And she comes on this film and does this, and then by the second film, it had all bled out. You know, she <laughs> wasn't intended. She wasn't intended to be doing that, and it just was kind of kind of hovering in her voice until you know by the time they did the second one, it was gone. How funny. Anyway. But uh, you know, I, I like Felicity Jones a lot. I think as a as a human, you know, when you see her in interviews and and you know doing whatever she's doing, she, she you know she's she's got a funny a funky smile and mm-hmm. a lot of mannerisms. But I think um, particularly playing it solemn with the with the eyes and just the earnestness and the sort of just the urgency. Yeah, the way she played Jin or so, it was dead on perfect. I loved it. Yeah, I thought so too. I she has a really unique face. Uh, like you said, she has a way of kind of holding her face that's kind of unusual it's very earnest and it's easy to kind of lose yourself in her expression but uh, in a positive way not in a oh well i'm distracted from the movie with this she conveys a lot of emotion and expression with her eyes and her mouth and i i was really surprised how much i enjoyed her in this like i've seen her in a few other things but she didn't she didn't have the same I mean, this is definitely not just how she is. Like, she right. was playing it this way. When she was um, the future black cat in... Felicia, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Spider-Man. Uh, in that throwaway, she mm-hmm. was playing a totally different type of character, and she had a different... Um, I mean, it was almost like it was a different face. Like, right. I barely... I have to force myself to remember it was the same actress. So right. That was, but I really bought her, and I loved... You know, where... Where sometimes I'm critical of how these new movies and the spinoffs and the um, you know content in the comics and the extended universe from before and all that where they take the same imagery and they just repackage and repackage and repackage it mm-hmm. rather than creating new stuff. I'm somewhat critical of that um, but I loved that there was design consistency in this movie that was even more impressive than it was in Force Awakens without feeling like a retread. I agree. Her, her look Initially, she starts. To, she sort of looks like she's doing a female Han Solo, right? Mm-hmm. She's got the the holster and the type of the tactical pants, and she's got the vest. 
but you you kind of get the sense that this is this is just sort of like you know <laughs> working gear. Yeah, right? absolutely. This, She's just in wearing inter- intergalactic Carhartt, basically. Yeah, and and what was what's compelling about that is in the for those of us who watched the original three or yeah the original three films, you know that's what that's that was Han's costume, right? right. Han or Han, depending on which cut of which <laughs> clip of which scene she was in. But you know that was that was his costume, and then yeah. they expanded it out. And there are a lot of times when artists or even um, um, designers on these films they'll take stuff and they'll just keep re reusing it to the point where you're like, Oh, come on. Right. You can, you can, it's more impressive when they have variations where have design language that's consistent, but that's new stuff. Yeah. And I thought they did a very good job of that. And we should get to that later. But anyway, her costume, her costuming across the board was great. Um, I loved, I loved her in that ground in the sort of airfield crew empire uniform, the all black. Yes. Yeah. It's, you know, that was definitely her strongest outfit, but she did look really great in pretty much everything in it. And like you said, the, the design consistency was there. It felt like a logical progression. It wasn't a radical departure in terms of costuming and design, which I thought was really great. I did like, I think some of the best I can say about the prequels is that some of the set design and costume design was really great, mm-hmm. where others of it was really, really bad. Yeah. Um, but when you look at, like, for example, Naboo, you really bought that this was a culture. This was a planet with a couple of different um, cultures on it and had a very distinct style. In this in this world where there's one city <laughs> or one people and it's the entire planet, <laughs> right? But, you know, the, the Naboo stuff was different, and I liked it. But overall, the prequels had people dressed... Unlike Naboo, in the rest of the prequel stuff, there was very inconsistent costuming. Mm-hmm. Even among things that are supposed to be familiar, it was uneven. And where it worked, it worked. But in other cases, it didn't. And what I loved about us not only entering the, a very familiar world because it was so close to the time frame of New Hope, right. but also, even though it was different pl- different system, different planets, the kit of parts was so consistent with especially what we were used to from the originals. Yeah. That, and the fact that it just opens <clears throat> right up into us, you know, entering this world and, you know, it's, it's the, it's the seventies cinema verite style of just, you know, hit the ground running. And this is a scene in an, in an, in an ongoing action that's happening. Yeah. And he totally bought it. That whole city, that whole streetscape and all the people that were in it and how they were dressed and the, and the droids and stuff. It was perfect. It I was really it. great. It was a fully realized world on all of the planets they were on, which I thought was really great. I loved that. It was, it was like the, the fury road thing that they did where you saw this one little throwaway scene and you're like, Oh my God, I want to know more about what's happening in that world right there. And they're just content with giving you just a glimpse of it because that's all they need to convey it. Yeah, it was no, it was absolutely um, perfect. And if I had any complaint, it was that the first. It seemed to me that the first ten fifteen minutes were muddled in terms of sound mix, mm-hmm. and that may have been my theater or people hooting and hollering. But I had trouble hearing the dialogue. I did too, actually. Uh, the dialogue and it seemed kind of dark initially as well for me. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to see it again, I think, um, in a few days and in a different theater, different setting, and we'll see if I can hear any more. But um, Cassian, Diego Luna as Cassian, there was some cognitive dissonance for me because even though we're talking entirely different ethnicities and people, the pairing of Felicity Jones and Diego Luna, comparing that against 
Force Awakens, mm-hmm. right? It's it, it was similar enough that it's a little bit jarring, and I can see why they were concerned that mainstream audiences would be confused. Is that Ray and mm-hmm. and uh, and and um, Poe? You know, right? Right. But um, and, and you know something about uh, Luna's performance initially, he was off-putting to me. Not that he was not because he was portraying this. This um, make the hard choices kind of guerrilla right. fighter. Right, he was definitely hard edged. Yeah, he was hard edged, but there was something about his his delivery and how he was acting with her at first that I I, I was having trouble connecting with. And mm-hmm. then something happened, and it may have been around the time that the character was warming to Jin, right? Because we saw that happening. But at some point, I totally I I became invested in him, whereas initially I wasn't. Like, <laughs> and that's not a bad thing because he was meant to be shockingly cold for rebel rebel fighter like right, that was the point right. was to show how you know he was very matter of fact as soon as his mm-hmm. contact was compromised you know yeah the cause was, is what matters it's not the people involved with the cause necessarily i and love that it was I, straight out of heat yeah right? yeah and He's, they definitely put him in a position where that came into play at the end of the movie that's right that's right. But that thing where he shot his 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 uh, informant mm-hmm. was straight up heat. It was just like, you know, once one guy's been killed, you got to kill them all. Right. right? In this right. case, it was like once he was injured, we can't we can't risk him talking. So kill him. Yeah. And, and he was clearly somebody that was going to talk. So. Yeah. So let's see. Donnie Yen. He was the most recognizable to international audiences in this cast. I think, mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. and, you know, honestly, I'd seen photos of him, but I've never seen any of his films. I don't know that and I have I, either. He's very popular for the Ip Man, Ip Man series of action movies. Uh, oh, of, of oh, which yeah. I've seen a few clips, which I know are great. of them, but I haven't yeah. seen any of them. He is very personable on screen. He's very interesting to watch. He is. I, I would say of the cast, I had the most conflicted feelings about him. Oh, interesting. Um, but it wasn't. I. It's. It's like this weird indefinable thing for me where his his faith but uh, I you know honestly I can't even describe it I've tried to wrap my brain around why I had conflicted reasons for not liking him liking him and I genuinely can't even articulate him like I really enjoyed him overall but there were a couple of scenes where I was like uh he's a little too blatantly I'll let the force raise this kind of thing. But it, it, at the same time, it didn't bother me. I, I really can't articulate what it was about his character. But I, I liked him. <laughs> well, the, um, the, interesting, the interesting thing about that is I, I was always very critical of the Lucas-era... It's funny you can say that. But the Lucas-era yeah. Star Wars films, for being so on the nose with their ethnic and cultural stereotypes, mm-hmm. um, which felt heavy-handed, while at the same time, a good chunk of... Well, a huge chunk of the original Star Wars script is basically just hodgepodging a couple of um, cultural themes and stories that he liked and is pushing them all together, and he can't make Flash Gordon while well, he'll make Star Wars, right? Right, absolutely. But it was, but it was Flash Gordon with... You know, a huge dose of of uh, Eastern culture mysticism, mm-hmm. and so you know, I you go from being like, well, okay, so you've got you know, uh, you know, uh, 
this this whitewashed east eastern uh, warrior monk concept fused with feudal Japanese, fused with Western concepts of chivalry, right? Uh, and then and then you go from that straight to the other side, and you have bad ethnic stereotypes drive you nuts. And so I think that's why that was one of my concerns about this character was mm-hmm. that I was seeing um, a warrior monk with a staff, um, and it was feeling very wedded in. Right. Period films from Hong Kong, right? Yeah, a blind but, warrior monk with a staff. He, right, right. <laughs> but but in the end, he he made it interesting because he gave you just enough between the script and his performance. He gave you just enough that you're questioning whether he, that order really was connected to the Force or not. Mm-hmm. Whether they had, you know, whether his, you know, what was happening there, right? Was he incredibly lucky, or was he was getting a little bit of guidance, or what? Right. And that was. What was the name of that order? Do you remember it offhand? I do not at all. No, the wigs, the wiz, the will, the wis, the will. <laughs> the wigs. No, no it's, it's it's something, no, it's something like, like that. that. But no, I can't remember what it is. Um, you know, that was something that was in the, what his original scripts for the for Star Wars and mm-hmm. were knocked out. Um, I I thought that the I thought that they gave you just enough about that to give you a sense that, okay, the Jedi have been decimated, but these are the guys who have been walking around worshiping them and sort of fighting to keep people uh, sort of believing. Yeah. I thought that was Yeah, just very, very kind of a, a presence to let them know that there are still believers and that the, the Force still exists in some capacity. I, I thought that was really interesting, and I think... Guardians honestly, of the Wills. There Guardians you go. The I, I think if they had cast almost anyone else, I do think he could have come across as a bad stereotype. And I think yeah. that's that's definitely to, to Donnie's Donnie? Donnie's Donnie, credit. Donnie again, yep. Um, is that he I mean, he just came off as just the right level of kind of zealot warrior monk without it being a stereotype. The um the concept of well, okay, so where the prequels were um, maybe a little bit mind-numbing with the politics and the trade commerce issues and all this a stuff. Little? Um, <laughs> a little. Um, I am interested where you see systems and then other systems and then other systems in the Star Wars universe. That's the world-building that interests me. So seeing a warrior monk class of non-Force-enabled worshippers of the Jedi, mm-hmm. to me, was really interesting. I thought yeah. it was great. Yeah, it was almost... I, in some capacities, it's almost those guys that play flag football on the weekends. Right. Because they can't play football, only it's in a world where football doesn't exist anymore. And I loved the fact that he never used a lightsaber. I was really worried that at some point, halfway through the show, suddenly a lightsaber would appear. Well, how about that there was only one lightsaber in the movie, right? It was excellent. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic, and there was yeah, and there was no Jedi in the movie, right? Um, I thought that was great, and uh, you know what he reminded me of, and and this is not meant to be a pejorative at all, but he reminded me of someone from the five hundred and first Legion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of meta, but you know, it's, it's yeah, I can see that both of those guys where they're like, hey, we have this thing that we're really into, even though it doesn't, it's not really technically real, but we're so into it that it's basically real for us. Yeah, that's you, that's a pretty accurate description. <laughs> you, know, you don't you don't dig on the Star Wars? You must believe in the Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so 
when Zhang's character, Baze Malbus, was supposed to be another one of the Guardians of the Wills, but he did not read that way to me. I had to know that from reading about him. Yeah, he like really in the just film, came across as Charut's bodyguard, basically. Right, right. And, um, and, and, but one thing it does show you, and what I did appreciate is, um, you know, I've criticized before, and I will do it again right now. I've always been frustrated that we saw, the, the first Jedi we saw was Obi-Wan Kenobi in the brown robes, mm-hmm. which he was supposedly on Hide, in hiding right. on Tatooine, pretending just to be some crazy old man in the in in the desert, and he was wearing these deserty robes. And then, because of the incessant need to just keep doing callbacks, the entire prequel established that all Jedi's wore the bland exact robes, same robes. Yeah, which which was really frustrating because if he was supposed to be hiding out, he wouldn't be wearing Jedi robes, right? <laughs> right. So, so what I liked about this was. This establishes that the Guardians of the the Wills are not all walking around in warrior monk trappings with with melee weapons, right? Here's a guy with body armor and a a big Vulcan cannon or whatever it is and (laughs) funny shock of hair. You know, it it proved that there was no um, um, easy uh, stereotype of how they were supposed to look to just kind of clone them all as a a character class, which I liked. Yeah. I love Bendo Mendo in this movie. Ben Mendelsohn. He he he's an interesting guy. We've seen him in other things, and I thought that he was I was gonna have a problem with him because of the list, because when you have a, yeah, a big bad the yeah. list, it's gonna take it away from you a little bit. But um I when it turns out that you're watching a guy who's actually got the most clear narrative as far as his motivations mm-hmm. in the entire film. Yeah. He was the most drawn character in that film. He was he was really interesting. He yeah, his character was kind of fascinating to watch actually. Yeah, he was the he was the he was that middle he was the upper middle executive about to get all his stuff taken away by one of the one of the top executives who <laughs> sets him up to fail and then takes credit for his work. Right. Right? It was fascinating to me watching him and then his gambit to go to Vader was fascinating too because yeah. boy, you're I mean in for a penny in for a pound, right? <laughs> so yeah, I, I thought he was great. Um, yeah, yeah, I really liked him. I like you said the 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 lisp thing came up every once in a while, but it wasn't it wasn't distracting at all. It was just another part of his character, and it was and it was a nice touch that we have that not every member of imperial leadership is old school British, right? right. Like, I mean, he he wasn't using his Australian accent, but he did not sound the same as everybody else nor right. you know there are other characters like um galen or so who's mm-hmm. you know was working for the empire didn't have that accent either but he's also i liked that he was not um he wasn't god-powered like vader mm-hmm. he wasn't um he wasn't ineffectual he wasn't one of the the imperial officers standing around barking orders and being pissed that things aren't going the way they want and not showing their all we ever see about the Empire's leadership is generals fighting each other right. and being petty repeatedly, even though they've seen evidence that it'll get them force choked, <laughs> and then standing around on decks barking orders. Yeah. I like that we have a guy here who you see him go, like, no, you know, like, and like run into the field and take action because everything he's built has fallen apart. That right. was really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely one of those guys that 
had a vision, was a manager in this big company, and didn't realize that those people above him could take what he'd been working so hard for. And I, I like to see his maneuvering to try and recover that, which I thought was really interesting. Um, back in the old Star Trek Next Generation days especially, but in all the Star Trek stuff, because I'm now I'm, I'm veering into the Star Treks, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's always been... It's always been a fundamental problem in those stories that the the bridge crew would go on away missions, right? right. And particularly the captain would be like, here, take the, take the chair, I'm out, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to um, go to this extremely risky planet that we've never been to before. With no life support. Um, but here you saw clear reasoning why he was, you know, jumping into the fray right. and running around and taking matters into his own hands because he had to. It was right. completely believable, and I loved it. And I loved how pinched he was. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I I have concerns in the in the last act, you know, both with him and with Cassian. They both had a little bit of the, um, you know, the classic horror movie. Well, he's not quite dead, kind right. of situation, which which I don't like. But overall, when you're considering that we did Saving Private Ryan, the Star Wars film, it's okay. <laughs> there yeah. was a lot of stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, there's got to be a little bit of that, yeah. <laughs> um, Riz Ahmed as Bodhi Rook was very good. I thought he really conveyed someone who was way in over his head. I was a very, hated yeah? him at first. Yeah, me too. Initially, he just he came out. He rubs really the wrong way. He was like this weird hippie that didn't seem like an imperial pilot at all. And yeah, I like this kind of weird needy. Hey, 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 you guys, hey, hey, kind of thing. But yeah. I came around to him really fast too. <laughs> well, but, okay. There's something very specific happening there, though. So we've seen so many. We saw Finn obviously in Force Awakens, but mm-hmm. we've seen other aspects of stormtroopers and collaborators with the empire and a lot of military people very hardened trained condition just like real world military right right this came off as a guy who was a civilian pilot for the empire right he's he like not the, the guy have, that delivers the bread <laughs> he does not have he did not appear to have training military training mm-hmm. he had technical training and he had piloting skills but he didn't seem to have more certainly didn't have field field operation experience he was no. a shuttle he was a shuttle pilot, not a not a fighter pilot. Absolutely. So his level of barely contained panic, um, particularly as he was about to get taken out by Saw's people, um, it, to me it read as the informant who's turned mm-hmm. and is now desperately panicking because he thinks that they're not going to, they're you know, they're not going to um, go to, to make make good on their deal. Like oh, we're right. going to keep you alive or we're going to keep you out of prison. He had that look like oh crap, oh crap, oh crap. Because well, I've gone, I've gone past the point of no return, and now I'm desperate. Yeah, he hit that point where he's like, okay, now I have to figure out some way of staying uh, relevant and not getting myself killed. But at the same time, I just realized this is an actual rebellion, which is going to involve me being a rebel <laughs> of some sort, not just delivering this and going to a house somewhere. <laughs> I, I want to talk about um, Forrest Whitaker, but first, Mads Mikkelsen as Galen Erso. This is an actor. That I cannot. There are a few of these guys out there right now that I just whatever they do, I'm just gonna just kind of you know, but I read the phone book and I'm mm-hmm. obsessed, right? Right. And I say that having not seen his Hannibal stuff, but <laughs> everything else, and even even him working with what what he had to work with in Doctor Strange, mm-hmm. uh, 
he's so screen sucking in this movie. You cannot stop looking at his face. Yeah. And, and the set, I mean, just the, and, and granted I've been, I, well, I love the setting of, Mm -hmm. of Scarif and I love this. And I love the, and also in on it, it wasn't Scarif where they first got him, right? Where was that? No, it was that just... Was, um, I don't know if they named it, actually. Oh, right. One of the or, unnamed... Yeah, I, I guess it came up on, on the bottom of the screen, but I didn't pay any attention to it. But, yeah. Well, I, I love that it was that um, Southeast... It was... Whereas Scarif was this very Polynesian thing, mm-hmm. this was, like, Indonesia or somewhere. And I love that he was wet. And yeah. his hair was stringy, and he was in the patties, and it was like that weird patty feel. I don't know why they had moisture... Uh, the farms in a very humid environment, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> it could have been something other than a moisture farm. Yeah, you're right. Okay, <laughs> sure. it's a paprika farm. The, the I liked that um, he was as drab and wet and dank and completely um, vulnerable as mm-hmm. he could be, and he still seemed like he had more of a dominating presence in his in his person mm-hmm. and. Than Orson Krennic, right? Who's <laughs> like saying, "Yeah, we're gonna come back, yeah, absolutely." We're gonna right. do this horrible stuff to you if you don't, and we're gonna do it anyway. You still felt like, even though Orson Krennic was underestimating him mm-hmm. and was just sort of strong arming him into coming back and was gonna, buy, you know, whatever, I mean, intimidate him, extort him into doing that. He, I got the feeling that Krennic felt that he was a bigger man than him and didn't like that. Yeah. Do you think? That- Yeah, Mickelson's got one of those faces where even if you know you're his boss, you're still nervous giving him orders. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that was a really great thing for him and for his character in this because his role is to kind of be that person that's like, "Um, I'm not actually important anymore, but I'm important because you're too afraid to tell me I'm not important anymore. Yeah, very and I'm going to use cast. that to my benefit. Very interesting casting. They could have played. They could have. They could have um, drawn uh, Galen as a completely different type of person. Mm-hmm. A small, older, minor player. One of the scientists. Right. One of those guys in the background that they all they took out of his of his of his team. You know, there was. It could have been a very different type of character that could have still filled the same role. It was mm-hmm. very interesting that they gave um, they gave it to him. I saw a thing today that was it said um, it, it was it was another one of those you know perfect photos of 2016, and it was um, you know representing summarizing 2016 right. And it was a photo of Mads Mikkelsen pulling out the vodka during one of his interviews on <laughs> just like very kept looking straight ahead with that deadpan face, and he's pulling. He's pulling the bottle out. Nice. <laughs> I think, um, and then, uh, and certainly Alan Tudyk has this, you know, he's got a career on, for as much as we're familiar with his his on-screen appearances, I mean, he's been doing voiceover and animatronic work for, or um, rotoscope work forever, or right. whatever you call that, um, stop motion. And, not stop motion, I'm so I'm Motion really capture. Motion capture is what I want. <laughs> Although stop motion would be rad. That would be. Tell Wes Anderson <laughs> to get him on board. Yeah, there you go. But, you know, he he played... I mean, I wanted K2SO to be awesome, and I was not disappointed. I loved him, and I loved his attitude. And I was yeah. shocked how much I liked him. OMG. He so, was so good. <laughs> it, it was great, and I and I, I missed everything 
in the particularly the first trailer, but everything that was cut out of the film, um, particularly the one the stuff that involved him. Mm-hmm. Captain says, "I can't kill you, so I won't right now." <laughs> you know? Right. But um, so no, he was amazing, and and I loved everything he was doing. Um, but let's talk about Forrest Whitaker. His saw changed fairly substantially from what we saw in the early trailers to what we finally got in the reshoots. Yeah, yeah, right. Com- like a completely different actor, almost. Yeah, different haircut. And granted, there was they they partially explained that away because there was the the earlier version of right, him. Yeah, right. Flashback, and then the current, but. I thought with all the setup that this guy was going to be a major component of the story. Yeah, yeah. And it was really interesting that he, you know, was like, now go. <laughs> I'm going to stand here. <laughs> I'm like, wait, why you why you stand there? Why didn't you just go? Yeah. Going down with the ship for no reason was very frustrating to me. However, it started I started to have my suspicions. It's like why would they have gone through that much work with him mm-hmm. if that was all he was going to do? And then they just said a couple of days ago, um Kennedy came out and said that um, she fully expects him to be involved in the other spinoff films. Hmm. And since the other films are taking place earlier in continuity than this film, mm-hmm. that means we're going to see more of him as the maybe the, we're going to see more of him as a younger, uh, urgent, fanatical, anti-imperial um, activist. So I think that would be great. I'm happy hmm. to see him in other films, but um, I missed from the first trailer. I missed the you know. What will you become? You know, we didn't get that. He was there was a lot less of the um, of the sensei in this version. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting how much of that, how little of that first publicity stuff that we saw actually made it to anything that we saw. They've all been talking about now that they shot many of the scenes several times, multiple takes of them Mm -hmm. in different ways. Um, so that they could put it all together in post and figure out, you know, what they wanted to do. And so, you know, I, I, in some ways I'm not that surprised. But um, it, it did strike me, though, that this whole film, I mean, I was Rogue One and it's about rebelling from the rebellion and all that. But, right. you know, we spent most of our time dealing with people who were rebelling against the rebellion, right? Right. His, his character was, well, they're frowning on him because he's making things difficult because he's the guy that's going out there and snipering people snipering troops and risking you know giving them away the the leadership of the rebellion don't like this kind of person can't <laughs> right. be, can't be controlled i think that's great he was rebelling but he wasn't part of the rebellion yeah right yeah and that he was so paranoid at this point that he was going to throw you right to the, the 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 thing um to uh to, to read your mind or whatever I, I everything about the way they did draw him i like just fine yeah it's just not what i was expecting at all yeah, I, I I really thought he was going to have a larger part, and that he would have kind of the um, uh, what's his name um, the the Bayes Malbus part, uh, where he was kind of the the support structure, a little bit of the maybe he would show up at the the briefing and be like you have to take her kind of thing, and I'm really yeah. glad they didn't. I'm glad that they. Yeah had her enable her part in the story. You're right. You're absolutely right. She, she, the implication that she was raised by him and that he was a mentor and, and, and a father figure and everything was there. But yeah. this was a point at which she was her own person and he was past his prime and, and he was total fringe, right? Right. Paranoid and aggressive and kind of crazy. And that was kind of fun. It was fun to see. 
a, a protagonist that was way out of control. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Okay. Well. So the cast was awesome. Yes, it was. What do you want to talk about? You want to talk about how things looked, or the plots, or secrets? What do you want to talk about? You know, I think we should talk about the cast that wasn't cast. <laughs> ah, yes. The what controversial you, components. Yeah, what did you think of Tarkin in this? Okay, so everybody's saying Tark, Tarkin was, uh, was was too uncanny valley, but that the Leia reveal at the end was fine, mm-hmm. and I felt the inverse. I actually felt myself very... I, I found it very easy to accept Tarkin. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of scenes where I saw... Some smooth something about his skin that it wasn't quite right, but for the but I thought it was otherwise an incredibly impressive job mm-hmm. to me to me. Whereas the Leia one felt like it was scrubbed, like it felt. I I agree. It it felt like an animated Leia standing there. I liked yeah. it. I think it. I think my major complaint about Tarkin is that they used him a little too much and they gave me too many opportunities to try and nitpick instead of just enjoying the experience. The Weekly Planet guys said that if they had given him the scene and then from there had him communicating through a little hologram, Mm -hmm. as they've done so many times in that world, that would have been perfect because, you you know, that was consistent with with the way things would work and... You would not think twice about it, and you wouldn't have anything to look at. It'd be fine. Yeah, but but all the same, I was able to make my brain make him real, which was great. With Leia, though, I felt like we needed her to be in partial shadow, or she's in. You know how they're playing with shadows and light a lot, right? Right. Ships passing over other things, or passing under things, and then light changing on the deck and all that. But they could have very easily handled her with her sitting or standing on the deck of her ship and then have the darkness peeling away as they're coming around the edge of the of a planet or something right. and you start to see her face in partial silhouette and then in full silhouette just a hint just for a second as she's saying it and then it's over yeah, yeah i think that would have been a really clever way of doing it i i wonder if they didn't because light and shadow becomes even more difficult yeah, with a face be. like that but i don't know. yeah but yeah, it I mean, neat, I didn't. Though. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was a great way to end it. It just wasn't exactly everything I was hoping for. It was really interesting that they that they that they tethered this so directly to New Hope in that into in 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 terms of well, we don't know. We don't know how long she was flying along um, before. Yeah, I mean, the, the simple her, fact is, is where they were at was clearly pretty centralized, and Tatooine's on the farthest side of the galaxy kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, it could have been weeks of them chasing, him. jumping and stopping, and them following up and then taking off again, Battlestar Galactica style. But, but that uh, whole cutting, cutting through swaths of rebel fighters and cutting through the door and, then, and, then, and, then, and all of this, and then uh, just barely missing as it takes off was was what a what a great way of ending on an action note yeah right yeah the payoff of that um but anyway going back to the the uncanny valley stuff and and i think we also have to throw vader into there too oh, absolutely. because was, there was um I, I was actually more i had more difficulty with vader than i had with tarkin he didn't have the physicality that it Correct. like he he was so much more vibrant than Vader in the first 
three shows. <laughs> yeah, he. It, there was something about him and the way they shot him. He was not as hulking um, and ominously in the shadows, or just this murky black force with a bit with with a with a sharp shine to him that makes it hard to see the detail. There was it was too much Vader just there, and also right. I've never been a fan of the smooth armor on the shoulder and how the cape just kind of pinned at the center in '70s style and then just kind of flowed over the shoulders the way it did. Um, it it looked really awkward to me in this one. Yeah, the way the cape was set. Now when he goes into action, yay, you know, and when yeah. he and and I love that they showed his his castle finally for the first time that they always have <laughs> been threatening to do that in the original in empire they threatened that it fucking villain, villains fortress on the lava it was so funny to me <laughs> well but they i mean they've had that in the concept art for mm-hmm. you know going back for decades and and you know we see sauron and stuff now but you know the idea that he would be forced by the emperor to 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 have his home base on the planet where he lost everything. Right. Constantly reminded of his pain. This is internally inconsistent with a lot of the rhetoric I see written in, I think still continuity stuff, the little guides, guidebooks and things that talk about, Oh, well, you know, he's got all this crap in his armor to dull him from the pain and all mm-hmm. his constant pain. And yet at the same time, supposedly psychologically, the pain is what's driving him forward. Right. So I don't know. I like the idea that he has been forced to live in his own shit. Right. Mm-hmm. Like he's, they, or that he's chosen to, right, right. I, I don't know. I I thought it was fantastic. You're right that the uh, I love brutalist architecture, so I love the scale of it. It didn't need to be 700 feet tall spire, yeah. But I loved how brutal. I loved all the architecture in the film, but I loved how brutal that was. It yeah, looked great. Yeah, it looked great for what it was. But you're right; it was pretty. You know, oh, I'm, was a, just, I'm a just, villain. <laughs> yeah, it was like the most like. Look, it's my villain fortress. <laughs> Interesting that all of the, the, the guesswork about who the hooded guy kneeling was, and it was just turned out to be, you know, a minion of Vader's. Right. But it really made me interested to see who else is wandering around doing service work around that castle and who those people are. Yeah. Right? Because in, in, the, in the books and the comics and everything else, there are people that he hires and people that work for him and everything else. But, yeah. I, I would I was really interested to see who else was in that castle. Yeah. But um yeah, so yeah, the the technology is still not quite there on that motion capture stuff, but they did a damn good job. And I still think that um Tarkin was about as good as we've gotten to date. Yeah, I mean really when you look at it compared to any other versions of that that aren't just a de-aging process. It's an actual full recreation. I think they did a pretty solid job. I just would have liked to have seen a little less of him in it or, like you said, showing up in holograms talking, that kind of thing. Right, yeah. But, yeah, I, so, I thought it was fun. So what about, um, we talked a little bit about Jyn Erso's costume and, and, um, and you know, and to some degree about uh, Saw Gerrera and how he, he had that that cyborg thing going on and mm-hmm. you know that was definitely part of how he looked but um i love some of the other going back to the thing of how do you make spin-offs of uh, well-known designs and make them feel like they're in the same world in the same time frame um i thought they did a really good job of making some of the unseen tech feel internally consistent yeah the u-wing is that it was it a u-wing u-wing yeah yeah, yeah. i think yeah it looked it looked very good. It did. Um, the shuttle, um, 
I don't know. Krennic shuttle. I don't. I don't physically like the massing of it. Like I, the 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 main yeah, the main body, the shuttle, sort of a pyramid. I don't like it that. Felt but, a little too blocky. Yeah, but you know. But otherwise, it was fine. Yeah. I really enjoyed the tank, and I enjoyed yes. the variants on the troopers. I love the shore trooper and the tank trooper. You no, know, I guess. I wasn't paying that much attention to the shore trooper because I legit didn't notice anything except that they were a beach color. They were beach color. They had a helmet that was much more evocative of the of the scout riders in Endor. Okay. The way that the way that the optics and stuff were in the vent. Um, they had a conspicuous lack of thigh armor, <laughs> but <laughs> um, <laughs> aim for the. But um, uh, I. I thought that they looked really. I just thought they looked different and interesting, but at the same time, felt like they were legit part of this operation. And the yeah. deaths. So there's this argument about like, how do we see new things in this that we haven't seen in anything else, right. and how does that make sense? And so much of the units that we saw were tied to the base and the planet and the places we were at that no longer exist or whatever. Yeah. Later on yeah. in the franchise, and I could work with that. Um, I'm also willing to accept that we just we have to put a put our brain in a jar a little bit and say, well, well and, it was more know, out there than we ever saw. The simple fact was, was, okay, so Return of the Jedi gave us the scout troopers. Empire well, gave us snow troopers. I mean, why wouldn't there be the beach invasion troops for a beach planet? And the bulk of what we saw in the show, besides those established locations, were troops that were deployed for the Death Star. So it totally makes sense that they would have the same consistent outfits for that <laughs> the death the death troopers were specifically krennic's guard right um and they looked amazing but yeah. um maybe, maybe a few too many facets in the helmets but otherwise i mean they look great the green and everything they looked mm-hmm. really intimidating the way these film the way they were shot mm-hmm. stormtroopers have always looked rad but never come across as rad because they're just you know and right and and force awakens did a real step forward in making them feel like they were real threats yeah um and 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 then also humanizing them, mm-hmm. but the one thing that Force Awakens did that bothered me was the helmets looked plastic because when they pull it off, like when right. when when Finn pulls off his helmet, it looks and it sounds something about it feels like he's pulling off a plastic. It had helmet. a wobble to it. It did. It did. And then, um, here filming the Death Troopers, the Shore Troopers, and even the regular Star Troopers in in uh, knee high water. Mm-hmm. And filming them in on in in these pat in those sort of rice patties and then in these other environments made them feel really creepy to me and like cool and scary like well he's just suddenly there you know yeah. like that's guy's gonna come kill me um, and this movie did a great job of making the empire feel make you fear them mm-hmm. from people this is at a time of transition where they basically are phasing out the the formal government and taking over and people are learning to be afraid of them and they establish that at the beginning that this is like very familiar times for us, perhaps, but right. you know the be- the beginning of the loss of freedom and that the, 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 this fascist sort of um, structure is is clamping down now, and people are starting to really fear them. In this movie, those stormtroopers are hitting things, and they yes. were actual military figures. I loved it. <laughs> right. I loved it. So uh, you know, I don't know, and, and you know, interesting, and the whole thing about the tank rolling rolling through that narrow street. I mean, that was straight up. Uh, you know, very familiar to us. It's Beirut, but but it felt very, f- it, and and it was everything we've seen from all of the the 
the the the, the Mid East wars we've had in the contemporary era, and the movies we've seen and the stories we've heard about soldiers having to walk through these very narrow um, ancient town structures and being worried about being sniped by people that look like villagers and whatever else and how paranoid and and soul crushingly um, claustrophobic it is yeah really capture that in that scene that whole sequence yeah the show yeah, of, that was... of them driving through you know they were still very vulnerable yeah and then you get the ATST come stomping through and blasting the hell out of everything. I thought that was fantastic. They really did a lot of fan service for the cool designs um, from Empire, particularly, right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, they they definitely took a lot of the design influence from that. And they're like, this was amazing here. Let's look at it with palm trees in front of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, ATSTs were always rad, and it was neat. To, and, and they were shown... Maybe in um, Return of the Jedi, scale-wise, they became more dominant because they had nothing else around them and they were fighting teddy bears and everything. But like an Empire, you barely you blink and you miss them, and they're small compared to the Adats. So they're just right. But then you put them in a, in a town, and it was scale-wise, it was similar to like War of the Worlds, right? Right. They look like the 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 tripods attacking Jersey. Right? They were like, <laughs> they're like that's really really bad for us that that's right there. Yeah. And also for me, I got to see my favorite droid, right? The um, Imperial Scout was hovering around in the background. And, yeah, I thought and, that was really cool. That was a nice touch. I love see, all that. Droid. All that was great. I had some um, just even from the trailers, I had some real problems with the fact that they were going to do a, a heist and steal some data and then run around on some big Bernoulli disc. And have to physically take this media around, but they did some good um, hand waving about making this necessary. Mm-hmm. There was no communications in or out, and they had to get the thing down, and they had to go back and get this deep this deep archive material, and then, you know, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it was it was a little convoluted, but I I think it worked still. I think that they should have. It would have helped if they had said that because of the initial attack or because of something that the automation of the data retrieval had broken and they had to go in manual. Right. But it made sense then, okay, here's what we're supposed to do. Do this thing to get to the tapes, which seems incredibly fraught with human error, you know, <laughs> right. In an impossible, in an impossible, uh, smokestack, um, void space again, <laughs> we're going to start <laughs> moving Bernoulli discs around, but, um, you know, it's still, it was fine. They didn't spend too much time on it. Um, I was very disappointed that cash in, fell to his apparent death on that one platform and then he shows up again later and starts blasting. I was perfectly content with the the sort of decon war movie style um, thing that he would just die there. You know? Right. He doesn't make it to the end. So but, you know, that's fine. Yeah, I, I feel like that may have been one of the reshoot aspects that they did. Given that that happy ending on the beach before it ended, kind of thing. Well, you can imagine an, another version of that where she gets the de- the plans across, but she's doomed, and she sees the the, the effectively the mushroom cloud, and right. just sits there as well. I'm screwed. Um, having a partner to be able to find comfort in and just say, "Okay, well, we did it, and here we go." Um, I can see thematically why they made that change. Yeah. I think the other one would have been just fine too. Yeah. But, and who else is going to be on the beach, you know, holding her hand or whatever? Then, <laughs> right. You know, I, I think it would have been even better if it was K two S O. Right. <laughs> <laughs> her just cradling his head. <laughs> <laughs> he was. Um. It was really. It was a little emotional when he got blasted to bits and went and, and burned out. I mean, 
It really was. Yeah. The thing where she handed him the blaster was fascinating. I love that little scene where he just looked down at it and he's like, okay, yeah. I don't even know what to say, you know? Yeah. It, was, it was wonderful. I loved his scale. I loved his massive, long, I spindly too. legs. I thought he was going to feel really out of place because everyone else has either been short and squatty or very human proportional. But he worked. He had just the right level of clunkiness to him. To... Well, he was the first droid to actually have mobility. Right. Right. Everybody has always been fairly stiff. And he had these – he moved slow, but he had long reach mm-hmm. and he had articulation and because of his size and because the, he was described as being this sort of imperial enforcer thing, my sense was they were designed to be intimidating. Although I, he said he was a strategy droid in the movie. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, and that's the only time like they specifically mentioned what kind of droid he was. And that doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah. But... Gotta reach long strategy things. Yeah, I just like too much you. to complain too much. <laughs> it, it was a really creepy scene when they said, "You know what you have to do," and then he's sitting there drilling out the whole the head of another one, and it had that. It, it evoked those kinds of scenes in movies where where characters are forced to eat their own in order for some sort of cause, you know, betray their own people, kind of thing. Right. That was neat. I like that. He's just a reprogrammed droid, but you know, it was fun. Yeah. I anthropomor- anthropomorphized him just fine. <laughs> So, uh, plot-wise, um, it, 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 it had some convolution mm-hmm. and some confusion in areas where I felt like it could have been, it didn't need to be, it could have been a little bit linear, a little bit more linear, yeah. but it def- definitely, though, uh, satisfies what my main problem with Force Awakens, as much as I love Force Awakens, remember I felt like it was frustrating that in in all of its efforts to be a, a you know, the cyclical um, callback to the other movies, even in its own structure, it was going planet side, ship side, planet side, planet side. And it was so repetitive in that way that I wanted more of the linear fashion of the first three. This movie felt linear enough. It did. Right. I think so. I think it told a really nice, straight forward action heist spy flick <laughs> it totally did the prequels they tried to do linear like empire mm-hmm. but they did it in so in such a uh just ham-fisted fashion that it felt like they were episodes they were like um uh, levels in a video game right yeah, yeah <laughs> like absolutely. it didn't feel it didn't feel natural when they were going from world to world in the prequels to me here it was back to what empire was like for me where yeah. it just it made sense that they were going to these different environments for very specific reasons. Absolutely. So I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Um, what did you think about how Vader was used um, in the final, well, both in Krennic's scene with him and then and then later on when he finally lands and, and starts raising hell? Um, how, did, how did you feel about it? Did you think he was necessary? Uh... I think he was from a little kid getting excited to see Vader standpoint, but I think uh, he really doesn't seem to fit into that space. Like once they're going after the information, it makes sense to send Vader after it because he's kind of the guy that they're going to send out to intimidate, run the the general group of guys hunting down the information. But the other appearance of vader just seemed kind of out of place it was like 
I don't know. It, it it didn't quite fit in for me, but I I still enjoyed seeing him. But it was. I mean, from a fan service standpoint, surely it was fun. But right. I, here, here's what I was thinking about. Okay, so what what really appealed to me in uh, particularly in Empire, but in Star Wars too. Mm-hmm. What I liked about Vader was that he was this odd side to this military structure. So you have this whole uh, military regime. And then it's being led by a um, whatever, a doom priest, right? <laughs> right. A religious crazy who's Throwback. running the military, is running the military, mm-hmm. has no, there's no ascent, no attempt to be in uniform or to be part of the structure. He's just being his crazy self and he's running things. And they're all kind of nervous about him being there like, oh, okay, the emperor. But, right. you know, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. In those movies, Vader was interesting because he was on the deck. He it was like he was he was like a, um, he was untouchable because he was the Emperor's apprentice. Right. So he was allowed to be there. He could give direction, but he didn't always give direction. Right. Oftentimes mm-hmm. he was warning or saying, "Emperor is going to be pissed. You better do what you're supposed to do." Right. Or don't fail kind of things mostly mostly like a, an intimidation thing yeah he was but kind not... of loss prevention <laughs> yes right he was not in charge right he could be in charge but he didn't need to be. he wasn't supposed to be like he right. wasn't he shouldn't it shouldn't be necessary that he's calling the shots mm-hmm. he's his and in the original movies i felt like it was pretty clear that his motivations whether they were what the empire wanted him to do or later what he wanted to do all of the, the the machinations of the empire was to the to one side for what he was you know he was going along with it but he had his own agenda yeah right yeah and in and so in this movie so first of all you give you give us a lot more darth vader than we got in the others and he's much more active mm-hmm. okay fine fine but i think he's most effective when he's ominous and creepy i agree and he was much more a person having a dialogue in this movie before he before the end when he starts cutting things up. <laughs> I love the scene with him and Krennic. I got the mm-hmm. reason for it. But Well it was almost was a, like was a... like from a management standpoint, it was like a middle manager getting pissed off about things that were happening, and instead of going to the big boss, they go to the boss's son or something. Yeah. Who has power but it's kind of an undefined power and so, I mean, it makes sense looking at it that way, but at the same time, it felt completely unnecessary. The, yeah, the, I, like I've thought about, well, okay, it makes good sense that you use Vader as much as possible in these other movies because it was such an incredibly po- incredibly popular component to the Star Wars mythos and sells a lot of toys. Yes, he should right. be used. And, you know, his death, sort of like Darth Maul was wasted and can't use him anymore. Right. Too bad they did that because he was really neat looking. Okay, well, Vader, okay, so Vader dies at the end of the first trilogy or the, you know, our first trilogy. Mm-hmm. And and there you go. The one, of the one of the most recognizable villains in history is gone and they can't use him anymore. Right. This is a great opportunity to bring him out of the toolbox and, and play with him. However, I've thought about, you know, in these expanded movies that they're going to do, can they do a Vader movie, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, the only way it works is if Vader is the monster. Yeah, yeah. He has to, the, the movie has to be in the per- point of view of people who are either working for him or running from him. I feel the same way about Boba Fett. Yeah. I love Boba Fett as a concept. I think he needs to be implied as being 
the best at, there is at what he does and and being really tactical and being really shifty without we just following him around. Yeah, right? you can't be you can't make him the nice guy. And one of the one of the biggest failings of the prequels was I understand that it was supposed to be the fall of Anakin. But yeah, we got way too much in the head of this whiny bitch mm-hmm. before he just, before he loses everything and goes dark. Um, it was really hard, even after all of that work, at the end of Revenge of the Sith. Is that the one? Uh, the, that's the third one, yeah. Yeah. They did all that work, and then, okay, here you go. We pull him off of Mustafar, we stick a bunch of cyber parts on him, and we give him the armor, and there you go. There's our familiar Vader. It was really jarring because he was so unimpressively intim- he was unintimidating right. leading up to that point it, it did not feel like the same guy at all that we then later ceased if you know. they'd been smart the, the the prequel trilogy that they did the first movie would have taken place it would have covered the first and second movie right they would have made him a, a young kind of idealistic kid who they could then show the the shift to adulthood the confliction the the love the conflicts with the jedi order that kind of thing and then the third movie can pretty much stay the way it is but they needed another movie past that point where they show vader becoming vader from vader Uh, yeah that's that's really where they kind of drop the ball as far as that's concerned it's like they went right from oh i I'm on my my lava planet all fucked up, and now I'm Vader. Well, yeah, and, you know, uh, Lucas persistently says that the prequels were the story of the fall of Anakin mm-hmm. and that the, that the original trilogy was about the same choices applied to his son, and his son makes the right ones instead of the wrong ones. Right. And or, you know, in other interpretations, which I think go beyond what Lucas was saying, and then... You know, leading into some of the writers and what they saw it as, that the whole idea was that he's going gray. Mm-hmm. That his greatest strength was that he acknowledged the dark. That you couldn't. That the failing of the Jedi was that they believed that the dark side had no place. Right. That actually, the true balance of the Force is the gray, mm-hmm. having both sides to you. And you know, the, the hope. My hope is that in Episode Eight, we're going to see him in gray robes. I like that quite literally. Now, granted, there's a lot of tiebacks to Tolkien in that, but. I think it makes sense given all of the really harsh iconography that they use in the in in the Jedi Order in that regard, the light and the dark and all this stuff. Yeah. Well, so so you know, in that sense, I think that the prequels also should have been, again, not from Anakin's point of view. Just like a Vader solo film, I appreciate that Lucas wanted this to be the fall, the choices, the sins, the choices that that this boy made and how he how he couldn't get, you know, how the the formative experience of being rejected or being denied and and the callousness in which some of the things that happened to him were and how the cruelty of some certain things and how he was the personality that couldn't handle that. Whereas another type of hero might have persevered, he gave into that. Okay, okay, I get the heavy-handed um, theme <laughs> from that. Um, but I still think that as a, as a film and certainly in the overall story of star wars it would have been more much more palatable if we saw just like a solo vader film if we saw the events of the prequels from the perspective of the other characters dealing with him as opposed to following him along in other yeah. words yeah if if it had been obi-wan and Kigon jin's story right. and how do we deal with this guy 
and you never you never see these little soul these little one on ones where you know oh the sand is in my ass and I hit it blah, blah, blah. are you uh, an angel yeah yeah all that horrible <laughs> stuff you know just like uh, you know you you take all that out and you just make him more of an enigma you don't really know what he's thinking and you and and he's like good good movies about serial killers or sociopaths they're always effective because you see the bad things happening stacking up you see the formative stuff that's leading to them going crazy right or or is leading them down that path of 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 no to no of no return but you don't see him them sitting there writing to your diary you know yeah. to split a cat in half i don't know why you know, <laughs> we don't we don't get that we see them and we see their eyes and they and they start to be kind of uh, you start to feel like well that's a really shifty expression i'm not sure i like what he's doing there right but i'm not sure i can I, I, i'm not sure i can read this guy that's the kind of stuff you need in a character that is supposedly um, making, um, you know, making difficult choices that are going to lead to their downfall and turn them into straight up evil. Yeah. So as a result, I just felt like the same thing again with Vader being used in this film. He, he, he was a character, and I want Vader as a feared. Uh, Dune Priest, just like the Emperor. Mm-hmm. I want him to be scary as shit. And I want when he gets on deck, they go, oh, crap, 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 crap. And you get out of his way, and you don't. You try not to make eye contact, and you hope that he doesn't fucking ask you any questions unless you get choked. And, you know, it was one thing for Krennic to be comfortable enough with him because of, their, of his status and whatever. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he wasn't yet this well-known or less powerful i don't know i don't know how you how you interpret it but but krennic's being able to talk to him like that demystifies vader a little bit yeah i think so i think virtually everything that's happened since return of the jedi has demystified vader and turned him into something that makes his sacrifice at the end of return of the jedi less impactful yeah and I think that's one... I mean, like, I I don't hate the prequels the way a lot of people do. I can sit right. and watch them and not... I mean, I don't necessarily enjoy all three of them, but there's parts of all three that I enjoy. Sure. But that part of it, the way it genuinely makes Vader a completely different character, it's not in a positive manner at all. I'm still... Um working my way through seeing the prequels with the kids mm-hmm. we saw the first one we got halfway through the second one and then they you know, they're falling asleep or whatever <laughs> so i i'm looking forward to finishing the second one and seeing the third one again using my not only using my kids as a as a viewpoint but also just having another chance of seeing it you know from adult perspective yeah um, i, I want to see the third one want to see the third one again and i want to see if that if it is just as because there's content in the third one that is absolutely appalling mm. so horrifying the was it rule rule whatever it is rule 99 or whatever it's called um go kill all the young jedi oh <laughs> yeah, yeah this is so beyond scary and it, it's it comes from really out of left field too it doesn't seem like he's at the point that he'd be totally down with that but he's just like bum, 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 younglings death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But, but 
Yeah, there's parts of that sh- that particular movie though that I actually do enjoy. Like what? Of of episode three. Yes. I I like more of it than I dislike actually. But most of the you have to take it out of context from the 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 four original films is the problem because mm. they do make the four original films less pleasant to watch knowing the way Vader kind of became what he became in such a lame terrible manner uh, but right. i i didn't i i think 3 is actually the strongest of the 3 films that that sounds like it. yeah okay well again i've only seen i have i've only seen 3 once and i only saw it you know, I mean, I only saw it once, and it was then. So <laughs> I, I really that was a hell of a I, I long a, time ago, dude. Then was a long time ago, dude. Yes. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. Nice. Yeah. Maybe so, uh, let me know when you guys are doing it, and I'll rewatch it, and then we can talk about it. That sounds good. We 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 are running low on things to talk about. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> What else? Uh, anything else you want to talk about about Rogue One? I, I mean, we should mention that beyond the um, the motion capture stuff, there was also some other um, surprising cameos, although primarily for nerds who are reading about how the film is made rather than the viewer. Mm-hmm. Such as the pulling of original footage that was unused. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. It. Yeah. Did you did you detect it or did, were you aware of that when you were watching the movie? I, I honestly I was not. I wasn't entirely like I recognized the guys and I recognized them as their characters from then, but I didn't realize that it was just repurposed with like a new background and that kind of thing added. Uh right. Devin caught that and was like, "Dude, that's just that they just took it and added a different background behind the the screen on it." I was like, oh man, that's pretty impressively done, actually. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was a, it seemed like a labor of love thing that they would do just to be, you know, like they did it to because they could. Yeah. Um, but it, but it, it paid off as far as I was concerned. I liked that they did it. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I missed the Tie Fighter coming up on her on the on the gangplank. I thought that was a really vivid scene in the trailer. We didn't get that. Yeah, that must have must have been in one of those recuts where maybe what's his name didn't come up and help her because he had actually died or something. Well, and also we saw in the trailers that um you know, we also saw her running on the beach with the Bernoulli drive whatever. Right. Oh you yeah, know? that's true. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not I'm not positive um, how it would work either way, but I mean, I, the beach thing I didn't care about, but the, um, although there was a really interesting, hopeless fatality to understand, understandable sacrifice, mm-hmm. but the hopelessness to the fact that they had that doomed mission of we're going to go to this side mm-hmm. and make a big commotion and attract them all, and then you go over there and do what you're really here for. Right. That's that's always an, a really horrible position to be in in wartime, right? I'm going to be the bait. <laughs> yeah, and and they and they played it. I liked that um, Bodhi Rook's character you know, had a grenade in the a gr- the grenade in the shuttle, and that was it. Um, it was very war movie like. Yeah, uh, I felt like um, 
uh, um, Warrior Monk's bodyguard kind of went out pretty quick. That was a little surprising. Yeah, but, no. yeah, I, I really expected a little more there, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad they didn't give him an overly dramatic Rambo yeah. ending. Right, right, killing everybody, doing all this, you know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, on the subject of other things I liked visually, I have to say, I liked the at-at cargo. I don't know if they have another designation or not, but I liked those walkers in this film immensely. Mm-hmm. I like the visual of the orange cargo module in them when they have them. And what I really liked from a world building standpoint is that when this, when the alarm is raised that there's an invade, that there's an, a, a penetration in the security and that there are something going on and that they've, they've got a problem with the shield up above and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I love that they just throw everything at the people on the beach. Like, just, just go get them, you know. And so you see, there's one of the those at those adats that has no cargo module. Right. It's just and a it's walking around there. Yeah. And there's specifically a scene where it gets shot at, and it buckles at that pinch point because it doesn't have that mass. Right. And it crumples. It crumples in on itself and falls. And to me, I was nerding out on that. I was like, that's perfect. So, um, and then of course, uh, I totally forgot about it until, until just now, but, um, how fun the, the, the world's, the, the planet sized force field is a MacGuffin, which is annoying. Right. But the way they resolve the ring, the little gate mm-hmm. by sent by knocking the star destroyers into each other and then sending <laughs> them down. That was pretty great. And apparently that ship that they used, the, 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 the hammerhead. hammerhead. Corvette. Uh, Corvette yeah. was used in. I think it was in Star Wars Rebels or something first, but they've never actually used it in this way. It was just a design. Hmm. But but you see it now, and you're like, well, of course that's what it does. Right. <laughs> you know, like, I absolutely loved. I'm always fascinated by um, spacecraft and whether it has mass or not. Like you know, real world spacecraft is all tinfoil, right? So you right. know, anything, a tiny little rock will blow the whole thing apart. Uh, Martian, which we saw together, was very good about reminding us about how thin everything was. Yes. Um, it was interesting in this case that the hammerhead was built to be very, very, very dense. And it was really neat to see it ram a destroyer and then send that destroyer into another destroyer and then send them down into the well. That was fantastic. Yeah, I thought that was really great. Um, what I also thought was interesting about this is that this is the kind of setbacks to the Emperor's to the Empire's um, power in the galaxy, whatever, mm-hmm. that you think would have been told far and wide because this is a major thing. They just they were dealt a major blow. Right. Even if you don't know what was stolen, just if you were some sort of a spectator or if you heard about it, oh, so a bunch of star destroyers fell down the gravity well. Okay, right. That's something, right? And there's no mention of it. And part of it is they use the weapon on this little sort of half power or whatever it is yeah surface surface scalding level and they just wiped all evidence of anything i mean it's like there's nothing there yeah yeah i thought that was a really interesting way of dealing with it certainly <laughs> well I mean, you know and also i mean it, it they had a big problem with how do they how do they bring the you know how do they bring the um how do they bring the death star into this without undermining the, the impact of Alderaan, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. If Alderaan was the first true test, then, you know, they, then they can't really have any... Yeah, they could only do light broil on the settings. Light, <laughs> light broil. 
and I thought that they did a fantastic job of, well, no, no, no. I thought they did a passing job at explaining away, you know, it's not quite ready. Mm-hmm. They made us, they made a couple of references to that, but it's not ready, you know, or, you know, or we, we only have enough power for X mm-hmm. and to me, that is enough. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, it, it's, it's like in the later in, in empire and granted they've written in that, Oh, or I guess it was in return of the Jedi that they said, empire said, oh, of course they found the plans cause we let them or whatever. Right. Right. Um, but we explain away the incomplete death star um, that we know what it is, we know what it's supposed to be able to do, and we're going to go at it now before it can do it. Um, we are, we've already seen it. We have the reputation of a Death Star. We're willing to accept that. Yeah. Here, the Death Star never existed, and we know what they're supposed to be able to do, but these people have never seen it happen. And it was neat to me that unlike Alderaan, mm-hmm. and unlike the entire solar system in Force of <laughs> you know, here we have devastating force of destruction being used and there's no witnesses right it was not used to set an example it was being used purely as an asset yeah just to cover things up (laughs) just to cover things up yeah to me that was really interesting yeah yeah i thought that was kind of a neat way of taking care of that covering and as far as they're aware at that point you know that that took care of most of their problem they just had to track down this one little piece of data right so that all haven't been said and yes we both love the film Mm -hmm. is there anything is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you would have done differently or is there anything narratively speaking that you think they should have done differently that would have made it stronger you know there's really not a lot i mean there's the little things we've talked about already with tarkin and vader and that kind of thing but honestly like i really enjoyed it even the yeah, we're all rebels too, and we're we're in with you, and we're gonna make the distraction. It worked really well with this. I I thought that basically the entire thing was just a tight, really fun movie. I I liked the component of this that the um, it's alluded to later in the in the I guess in the books that lead up to Force Awakens, especially, but it's alluded to that the that the Galactic Senate had become bloated and not um, and not effective, and that the <clears throat> and and now you're seeing this tether to it in the early rebellion mm-hmm. that it's got too many voices and not enough strong leadership and too many people are worried about the implication of this or that or the risk and they're not making the, the more um, bold moves they really need to do in order to be successful. Right in this gambit, and I liked that uh, Mothma, Mon Mothma, Mon Mothma. I, yeah, I liked that she was sort of like felt like, well, my hands are tied because my hands are tied by the politics of it. But if you happen, oh, they went ahead and did it anyway, and it's gonna, and they're doing the right thing that we've been too chicken shit to do. Mm-hmm. Right, great. <laughs> yeah, because, because you know we it needs to be done, and I just couldn't, I couldn't authorize it. Right, it it it, it smacked of speaking of heist and espionage and sort of procedural dramas it's it's smacked of those deals where it's like well my hands are tied but i'm gonna look the other way right do x and y and i and and i enjoyed that about it i'm gonna leave this book sitting on the table while (laughs) and go get a cup of coffee and you did not see this file you did not 
smile. <laughs> yeah, well, and I thought it was kind of a cool way, too, of showing that although they are the rebellion, they still have a certain amount of rules that they have to stick by. And There's politics. Right, yeah. right. They are different. They are different people with different agendas, different degrees of comfort with the fact that they are rebelling and how they're handling it. Um, I thought that that was. I thought that was interesting. Again, that was a component of politics that I appreciated. Mm-hmm. That, that the rebellion was a little bit. Um, uh, not corrupted, but it had some internal conflict. Yeah, because um, you know, in my in my. In my days studying history, one of the things that always um, fascinated me was that you know history books not only being written by the people that want to, that are around to write them, but they <laughs> but they simplify things into these sort of grand gestures. All of the French did this. All of the Germans did that. Yeah. I think it's interesting when you see a lot of com- internal conflict. Um, I see that in other product projects too, and um, I think when we're done with Rogue One, which we may be. Um, and I'll tell you about another project I've been watching that, that, that speaks to that very thing about the seemingly uniform uh, picture of a government that you're used to seeing and then you see the internal workings of it and you're like, oh, the sausage is pretty grimy. Right. But, uh, but anyway, so Rogue One. So you would recommend it to friends? <laughs> yes, slightly. <laughs> so, so where does this rank to you? Um, I am going to put it just slightly above Return of the Jedi, I think. And meaning... Oh, Empire, Star Wars, Rogue One, Return of the Jedi. I have a lot of trouble comparing this to the originals because they're so... They're pretty radically different. And they have their faults, but they're locked in time. Right. We've got this built-in nostalgia with them. Yeah, it's like trying to criticize fine art, you know. Yeah. You're like, well, <laughs> it is it, it is what it was, right? Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think okay. So let's keep it simpler. How what do you how you liked it better than Force Awakens? Then? I did. I uh, just I, you know, I I need to watch Force Awakens again. I haven't seen it since we saw it basically at the premiere. Right. So I don't. I don't remember it well enough to really lock in solid with it, but I remember it feeling a little too much like it was just a chapter in a movie. Yeah. And yeah. Rogue One is its own solid story. Even though it is an installment of the saga, I feel like it's a more well-rounded movie in terms of a full picture. There's an interesting problem when it comes to follow-ups to something iconic and then comparing them to the iconic thing, the, the, the iconic thing had to happen first in order for the follow-ups to work, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, like having I didn't I have watched the original trilogy more recently, um, and they don't hold in a lot of ways they don't hold up. Both, right. I mean, the, the practical effects work great, but a lot of the direction, a lot of the acting, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't work, and a lot of stuff that still works great. Mm-hmm. But, but in, in nostalgia carries a lot of it for absolutely. people like us right absolutely um but at the same time it's like when it's like it's like anything else like this it had it did something didn't exist before this existed so it's it's hard to put it in it's hard to judge it in relative context to the other things that came later. right well but i will say yeah and one thing too with rogue one versus 
uh, Force Awakens, Force Awakens had a lot of kind of homage, throwback, fan service stuff going on in it. And it's, I think, to its both positive and negatives. Whereas Rogue One took place firmly in the Star Wars universe, there's no question that it was a Star Wars movie you were watching, but it was without all of the wink-wink, tongue-in-cheek nods that The Force Awakens did. It had a lot of references to the other films, but without it being a whimsical nod, it were they were right. just shared world nods. Right. You know, they had. Um, you remember those guys that harassed um, Luke in Moss Eisley? Yes. And then was it Ben? Doctor Elzan and yeah, uh, Buttface. I don't. I had problems. I sort of I couldn't my brain wouldn't allow me to particularly enjoy them being in this movie because they got off off world at the right time pretty quickly <laughs> to not be decimated and also yeah. it was like I didn't need them um, there but uh, but but it, but it wasn't too heavy handed but yeah, I like things like a little the, unnecessary but I enjoyed it at the same time we saw the droid we saw a version I, unless I'm remembering this wrong but I feel like we saw a version of the droid that is also the one that gets renamed in the Bounty Hunter group in Empire. Mm-hmm. The one that has a C-3PO body but the insect head. Oh, yeah. Right? The one whose name was different on the packaging of the toy. Because right. The yeah. And then change continuity as a result. Um, the, 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 uh, the, the 501st people listening to this Zuckus and Zuckus. Right, right, right. some I can't remember the other one. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. So he was there. There was a mouse droid. Those kinds of things really tie. It's just like, do you remember? Because I'm always been a guy that liked, like in in the Star in the Star Trek world, I was a techie, not a trekker type. Right. I wanted the I wanted the stuff, not the people. <laughs> in Star Wars, it's the same thing. I want the the stuff in the world, and and less about the people that are being ballyhooed around. I remember when when Return of the Jedi, no, Empire, third act of Empire, I was so thrilled when I saw the silver C-3PO unit. Oh, the yeah. protocol droid. I was like, oh, my God, there's more. You know, like, I love that about it, and that, and that you didn't understand what it said. Oh, rude, you know? Like, I loved, <laughs> I loved that concept that you have other versions of these droids around. Right. That having been said, let me ask you this, my friend. Have you seen, read any of the modern Marvel Star Wars comics? No, I have not. You've heard about them? I am aware of them, yes. (laughs) Thanks to a handy uh, Marvel Unlimited subscription, I got to them because I am now, I'm, I'm proud to report to all 333 listeners that I am at... Um, like March of 2016. Are you really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, in my reading. Um, wow. So as, as a result, um, I've gotten to the Star Wars comics that were released in advance of um, Force Awakens. And there's some stuff I liked and some stuff I didn't. There's some scenes in Vader Down I posted to our new Hot Spanking new Instagram for... Um, oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. I neglected to mention to you that I was creating an Instagram for um, for Robot Kraken, but anyway, there you go. It's an opportunity to showcase things that we like in the um, in the worlds of comics. And, and what is the name of that Instagram account, Tom? Red. It's uh, Robot Kraken. Robot Kraken underscore Red Tentacle. Yeah. And 
And uh, and so I'll generally throw up images, and you should too, with all your free time. Images of things <laughs> that you liked, and we can showcase it visually, since that is the missing link in our podcast. That said, I posted a thing from Vader Down where he throws, he's on the surface of the planet, cutting through swaths of people, and... Um, and I aware it's the second time I said that tonight. But anyway, there's the ships, the rebel ships are flying in, and he throws his lightsaber in the air. Salvador okay. Lopuka drew it. He throws his lightsaber up, and it flies up, and it cuts one of the sides of the of the Y wing apart. <laughs> it explodes. Like he cuts the engine off of the one of the two engines off of the Y wing by throwing his lightsaber at it, and it sounds so absurd. Uh-huh. And it was awesome. <laughs> they, they totally pull it off. But the one thing, the one thing that I kind, I vaguely enjoy, just because of the way it's written. But I don't like in overall context to the story, since those are technically in continuity comics. Mm-hmm. Is that Darth Vader has a pair of he has a protocol droid and an R two unit running around that are sociopaths, like they've been programmed to be. Okay. Murders. So the R2 unit has all these weapons all over it. It's got missile packs and saw blades and lasers and things. It's called Triple Zero. And then the protocol droid is, I think it's a silver one, but it basically looks like C-3PO, but talks in a very, very, kind of like K2SO, like speaks in very droll, sarcastic ways about how it wants to murder all humans. Okay. It's amusing. Interesting. But at the same time, you're like, well, this is a part of continuity, and you know, all these comics are taking place between New Hope and Empire. Right? Oh, okay. Um, and I don't know. It's so it, on, on the face of it, it's kind of amusing. On the other hand, it's it, it sort of weakens the. It's an example of where you're taking something familiar and you're tweaking it a little bit, but not enough to make it its own thing. So the gimmick kind of runs runs short a little bit. But anyway, you can check that out. Yeah, that's interesting. So Rogue One approved approved so was there a red tentacle moment for you oh shit you know i should have known that was coming uh you know i've got to say honestly that probably the scene where k2so shows up during the street fight and she just shot the other droid and he's like did you know that wasn't me (laughs) (laughs) i i brought it up without having a good um answer myself but i think it it's either that scene or the scene where K2SO is fighting like the the Imperial troops are coming in. All the stormtroopers are coming in, mm-hmm. and he's reaching out with his long arms and he's just knocking heads. Oh he's yeah, banging them on the ground and just sweeping the floor with them. And they're just completely disoriented because it's an Imperial droid that's doing it to them, and they don't know what to do. Um, that whole component, I was waiting the whole film to see him cut loose. I wanted to see him physically attack someone, and I wanted to see him attack Imperial people. Right. Droid, which in theory was you know you don't even think twice in that world. <laughs> yeah, you, you, don't, you don't question what your droid's programming is. Clearly, it's not possible that it could be reprogrammed. Right? <laughs> so to me, that was the that was the that was the money the money moment for me that um, I was waiting for and that I got. And some of the other stuff we described, some of the big the big shots like the destroyers crashing into each other and yeah and stuff like that were and the and the empty at at collapsing on itself were very satisfying, but I think that the K2SO combat stuff was my favorite. Yeah, I love that. Nice. Okay, so that's our Rogue One review. 
sweet and we and we did it within well we did it while it's still in theaters yeah shockingly <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is our first podcast of 2017 by our the time first, this is a new monthly podcast as well and we talked we talked last time um a little bit about kind of some of the stuff we were dealing with and going through as artists and preparing for the dealing with the holiday season and some of the struggles that you've had and then leading into our plans for the cons for 2017 yeah um, i thought it would make sense to talk a little bit about where we are um because that's half of the reason why we have this podcast right right so you have a number of, of uh, cons already on the books, correct? I have like six. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay. Not as many as some, some years, but you at least yeah. have a number of things. Yeah, and most of that comes down to either me not having the money to apply or not having the money to apply and now it's too late. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. So as far as um, us being together, we know... So we're going to be in Rose City Rose together. Rose City again in September. Yeah. That's so far the only one that we have locked in. And so, so we're, yeah, and we're trying to, we're hoping to get confirmation on FanX. Mm-hmm. You're going. Yeah, I have go. confirmation, but I also did the uh, dealers' tables. And I've talked to a couple of other people that have started seeing some Artist Alley approvals, but they're people who are also there as panelists, so that's uh-huh. kind of a gimme. Um, but no one yeah. I've talked to that isn't a panelist has... No, none of them have gotten approval for Artist Alley yet. Yeah, I looked at my um, I looked at my status on the website, and it says new applicant. And that's all it says, <laughs> which tells me that that's a category of applicant, right? Right. Um, and, I'm in, and I have to wonder if it's going to be pre, you know, pre-approved or pre-vetted applicants first, mm-hmm. and then new applicants get judged, you know, to fill the remaining slots or something like that. I don't know. But I still am trying to be optimistic about it because as much as I don't particularly want to go to Salt Lake City again so soon, because <laughs> um, <laughs> I keep going back for work, but um, but it, it would be a fun show to do with you. It would be, yeah. It's, so. it's a fun show. I've always loved FanX and Salt Lake Comic Con. They're some of our best shows. It's It's one of those things that's hard to lock into. So hopefully, if you do get in, you you will get into it, right? Because uh, Salt Lake Comic Con attendees have this kind of weird. I it's it's a niche, and I've talked to some people that do really well at other shows that don't do well there, and hmm. others that do really well there, and so it's kind of interesting. Oh, interesting! That's it, it's interesting that you would say that. I wonder. Do you think that's a cultural thing about the area, or you know, do you think it's just... I could understand that being how some people are looking at it, but when you actually break down who goes to Salt Lake Comic Con, it's pretty widespread. I mean, we're talking about fifty to 100,000 people. Wow. They're not all coming from Salt Lake Comic... or from the Salt Lake City area, so... I don't know. Gosh. Gosh, that's a lot of people. It's insane, dude. I hope you can go. um so yeah we'll figure it out i mean part of the problem is that you know you have cons throughout the year but we're not um applying for them all at the same time right so we're not sure what's gonna happen but definitely um the goal is to have two or three shows that we could be at at the same time together yeah um on my end i've continued to work on the 
back catalog of prints of my mainstream art because I just want to get it done mm-hmm. because I want, I want everything that I'm going to offer that's, that's already been done. I want to get it on the site and have it printed for the next show. But then beyond that, um, I'm now fully invested in doing my, you know, the, the lion's share of what I'm working on now is all creator own work. Nice. And that's really my goal for 2017. I'm not a resolutions person, but as far as the way I spend my time, my very limited free time for doing art, I'm trying to make it now. I have put the work into representing, you know, the, the mainstream stuff that someone might recognize, and now I'm trying to make it about the the, the, the work that is all me. Right. And so Joao and I had, um, Joao, for people who are listening who aren't familiar, he's um, an artist out of Portugal who I invited to join me in, in Third Rail several years ago. Um, ah, 2009 actually, mm-hmm. and um, he's he's designed a number of characters for the universe, and he's worked on a lot of the illustration in the books. Um, he's a collaborator in Third Rail's original universe content. He and I have been working on the new source books for this stuff for several years, putting it down and picking it up, putting it down as our as our demands professionally and as parents have have taken over. But we have, I have said before that we're at like 80 percent on on completing the new source books i've been going through now i've been doing that thing i talked about last time i've been going through all the content i haven't done the thing where i read for two weeks but i've been looking at the material as well as most recently this was great uh i was looking at the original source book with my kids my kids were going through it and asking me questions about the characters i had it out as a reference material for my um new year's eve pick i'm just finishing now that mm-hmm. is using those characters and and i'm looking at them and some of the characters that previously I think we had said we're going to leave alone. I feel like the artist, I, I'm no longer happy with it, so I'm going to redo it. And <laughs> some of the characters' design and names I'm going to tweak because as every year goes by, I look at it. Some resonate with me and some don't. Right. So anyway, I think I might have a little bit more to do than I thought, but um, I'm really excited to spend the year um, sort of focusing on that. We'll still do the art chains. I'm going to still participate in them, but um, but with a priority being my own my own work so that's 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 fun that's exciting yeah um you you have some changes planned for this coming year as far as how you focus your time as well right Uh, yeah but we haven't really locked in exactly what that's going to be yet um we with our world in the shop the way it is and where it's our right now it's kind of our sole source of income i mean both Lindsay and i have novels but neither of us have put out novels in years and that means it's basically not selling anything um it's it's one of those things where we have to find that balance between uh, doing things that fulfill us and doing things that make money Understood. And we planned this week to sit down and just kind of be like, okay, this is where our priority is going to be. This is what we need to do versus this is what we want to do and try and find that balance. And we haven't really had a chance to yet. Uh, But it looks like I'm probably going to be shifting some of my focus towards more creator-owned stuff. Uh, I don't think my comic book's going to get done this year, unfortunately. But uh, we're going to do... You know, we're going to keep doing the pins, and I'm going to start doing a little bit more uh, home decor stuff that isn't uh, fan service type stuff. Yes, I think that's a great idea. Um, 
I don't know. We as of this moment right now, 2017, I'm excited about it, but I don't know why yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the pins is a, they become more and more popular, and I'm already seeing you as you have, of course. I'm seeing in my feeds bigger guns are making them. Mm-hmm. People are obviously having them shipped off. You know, having bulk designs being shipped off to China and having them made, and you know, there's right. a huge. So we're already at a point now where it's almost like that ch- that train is, or that ship has sailed. The train has sailed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, so, the train has you, sailed. You, you know what I mean? Like I, I was late to the pin game just in terms of I was only interested in your pins, but being being becoming more aware of that environment because right. of some of the people that um, started following me on Instagram when I was promoting yours, <laughs> <laughs> and so so then I. St- you know, I look at what they're doing and everything, and there's some incredible sort of indie pins, like really yeah. arcane references and really fun, sort of, it's almost like why gifts are fun, right? Right. <laughs> like, they're really, really clever, or memes are fun. Um, and then and then there's those, and then there's just, just increasing uh, influx of just generic pins, mm-hmm. which I don't which I don't like. Um, but I love yours. I mean, I have them on. I actually, I told you I was struggling with how, how do I wear these, right? <laughs> right. I'm, I'm 43 and I don't, you know, I don't work at a comic store. What am I supposed to do? And I ended up putting, I'm clustering them over the, 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 the right breast pocket of a, of a jacket I have. And I'm just kind of throwing them in. Nice. And, um, and, uh, you know, I have a few other pins that I have that I've collected. I have I have one I've had since high school, which did I show this to you when you were here? It's the symbol for the national. No, it's the role playing game association. Ah, that's rad. <laughs> and yeah, I don't think you did. That's amazing though. I, I got to get a photo up. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's design is a duodecahedron. So it's a 20 sided die nice. with, with, but it's a globe carved into <laughs> The faceting of the globe is you know it's broken into the die and this is role playing association. It's incredibly awesome and nerdy and but then I looked at it in context and I'm like, well, that's just too far. I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's one uh, thing with the enamel pins is, regardless of what your interest is in art and design, there's stuff out there for you. And the enamel pin design stuff has just exploded in the last year or two. It's just crazy. Totally. So. It'd be interesting to see if you um, if you cook up some more. What you're, you know, how you focus them and what you're going to do. Yeah, we haven't. Good. That's another thing we're we need to sit down and kind of tighten up on. And like we've got a few kickstarters that we're toying with, and we haven't decided which ones we're going to do and which ones we're not. And so it's just it's one of those things where we need like a, a solid couple weeks to just kind of sit down and evaluate where things are going to go. And right. we do that every year post holiday. We look at what sold, what didn't sell, how much money we have to devote towards new items because it's a costly proposition a lot of the time, Absolutely. and sometimes it doesn't pan out. So the hell we, you say? We shall see, sir. Um. So I have made some changes to my car office. As you know, my home studio is now in the garage. And in the summer when I were in the late, I guess I should say late summer, early fall, not that long ago, actually, mm-hmm. when we long enough that it wasn't the same temperature. <laughs> when we did this, when he first did this and gave my son his room, um, and my concern was more about heat. Mm-hmm. Well, now. 
Um, again, I can I uh, I preface this that this is not at all Idaho. This is <laughs> California problems. But like anything, it's context, right? It right. would be like as if, you know, I don't know, you were having um, monsoons in Pocatello. You're not prepared for them. Right? <laughs> so we're having a, um, a record cold snap in uh, in Northern California. We've never had it like this before, I think. Right. So I've, I'm on maybe my 20th day where I'm covering the garden, my winter garden and my citrus trees and everything because of frost. So... And we're the 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 high during the day has been in the mid 40s. Mm -hmm. The temperature has been dropping below, you know, in the very low 30s. A couple of nights where it was in the 20s, and there are definitely parts of Northern California that get that cold. And certainly, if you get right. pushed towards the deserts and everything else, it's going to be that way. But along the coast, this is not supposed to happen, right? And certainly not this early. So it's been a challenge, and one of the things, one challenge has been. Despite my best efforts, seeing certain things in my garden fail, I lost 20, <laughs> 25 or twenty six peppers. Like no. Pedro, yeah, I, I cover them and everything, but they're still turning black. So I don't know. Um, but as far as my my little office here, I've been coming out here and doing a little a few things at night, and we've had a couple of false starts on our recent recording, mm. and I've been. It's still fucking cold in here. <laughs> it's not. Um, it's not your problem where you had to get out of the garage because you couldn't record in there. But, yeah, I mean, um, we we covered our garden too. Actually, it's got about a foot of snow on it right now. Well, Maybe see, fifteen yeah. inches. <laughs> you covered it. <laughs> it was covered for you. You did no labor. <clears throat> but whereas in your in your uh, garage, it was simply not feasible to be out there and work out there because it's so cold and it's no, not. No, for us to to make that survivable we're gonna have to pull all the sheetrock off and re-insulate and put up a new ceiling with some more insulation and that kind of thing because you know we're rocking i think it's 12 degrees out there right now yeah so. um yeah it's a whole different world but i mean just as far as what we're used to here this is very cold for this time of year and it's really just cold period for what it's supposed to be and so right. um I found that working out here at night, which is the only time I can do it, right, when kids are in bed, mm -hmm. it's been a bit tough because it's averaging in the low 40s out here. And I have this little oil heater, and I've cranked it, and so it's it's warming my inner thighs if I'm careful. <laughs> you know, that's about it. <clears throat> and so the um, the bourbon's warming me tonight. Well, which is always but, nice. But, you know, it, it, it's hard to do stable... Um, coloring work on the on the Cintiq when you're just like kind of shaking. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, just, it's it's a little shifty. But what, a couple of things I've done that are different, and they're not directly related to the heat. In fact, they are the opposite. I put a freezer in nice. so that I can put all of my extra goodies because I have these mouths to feed now. I need to get stuff in bulk and shove and it in there. Your so that, freezer when I was there was stuffed to the brim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's a little bit thinned out because I move stuff. But I bought one of those I bought one that's got a, a foot, a footprint of three by three. So it's like a small fridge. It looks yeah. like a fridge. Scale wise, it's off, but it looks like it's a full fridge, right? <laughs> and it's all. So I have that next to the to the mini fridge in here. Um, so that's creating a little bit of ambient noise and also took up a lot of space. And then the other thing that um, is different is uh, I was talking with my buddy um, the other week about this move and. And he said, oh, yeah, so how are you handling the water? Because I said we have the water coming in under the door when it rains and all my failed efforts to stop that. 
And I said I was basically just putting towels down and then running them in the dryer, you know, because I've given up on trying to waterproof the door. Right. And I told him I also have these big these big um, packs of damp rid all over the place to try to suck moisture out of the air. Mm-hmm. I'm using I've upgraded to the point where I'm using um, these pails that are designed for marine use, like you put them around. <laughs> the boat. So I had them all over the place. He's like, I don't know, man, without a dehumidifier, I'm not sure how much, you know, those those damp rids don't do much. And I had never really thought about a dehumidifier before. I just, mm-hmm. just it never really factored, and so I, I started to get paranoid about it. I'm like, well, wow. so I bought a um, 110 pint <laughs> dehumidifier. <laughs> okay, so it's about the size of an R2 unit. That's, that's <laughs> and crazy. I got it running towards the front of the where all the books are, where my prints are, where all the electronics are. Mm-hmm. And Chris, my friend, I am changing it every day and a half. Jeez. Meanwhile, I have to put lotion on constantly because my fingernails are trying to dry out of my fingers. It's so dry it's here. Somewhat different. <laughs> but I guess, um, you know, better late than never, but I'm glad I'm doing it because if I'm if, – when I'm dumping these these – these containers of water out every and I grant granted I mean that you run the washer dryer it's going to put humidity in the air yeah, right? yeah. but I mean but the bottom line is that's got to go somewhere right right and otherwise it'd be going into the paper of the books and the prints and the electronics so it's good that it's running now but um it also makes me a little nervous for how much water was in the air prior to that but yeah no kidding so with all the space I had in here is now occupied by this many more things. <laughs> so do you have any projects currently on the books or are you mostly just focusing on fulfilling orders? Honestly, like right now we're just kind of sitting out in midair waiting to decide which way I'm going to dive. So I, I have nothing. <laughs> Did you ever finish your uh, Vlad Fix Memorial Jam piece? Nope. I'm still sitting on... I, I like I've literally not even put pen to paper since uh, mid December. Basically, between my kidney stones and and Ugh. everything else, I'm just yeah. I haven't drawn anything in months. Yeah, it's been you've had a really brutal. I mean, it's been a really brutal um, last few months for for everybody. I think, but um, ugh, painful kidney stones. I, I have to imagine. Um, put a little bit of a damper in your ability to do anything. Yep. There was one point <laughs> where I was literally just writhing on the ground in agony. Uh-huh. So, covered, I mean, actually, more hair. than one point. Yeah, my wife actually, like, vacuumed the floor while I was in the other room because she's like, you're just, you're getting covered in, in dog hair because you <laughs> can't Jeez. actually stay on the couch. You're in so much pain. Oh, I have, God. I... I got in a car accident four and a half, five years ago, shattered my right arm, uh, bicep, the humerus there in 23 places, and broke six ribs, and that pain was nothing compared to this pain. Wow. (laughs) You're you're giving birth to all these little things at one time. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty terrible, man. I feel for you. Um, And my... um my boss at work actually has just been hospitalized for gallstones and it sounds, it sounds very similar. Um, you know, he's older obviously, but you know, he was in the hospital for four days for it. So that's, that's not a good sign. Yeah. No kidding. Um, I've had more chances to draw in the last month than I've had in four months. I mean, I've spent all that time doing all of the product content that we've been talking about and just kind of burning, burning, burning to get it done. And only this month have I, 
stopped and switched gears and then been you know drawing things and having stuff queued up in the in the iPad to color and stuff and the result of which is that I have seven or so six or seven pieces that are like ninety percent done nice. waiting to be you know they're, they're waiting to be brought back into Photoshop and finished mm-hmm. with the container and stuff and then published but they're, they're they've been colored and done and then I have a bunch of other inks and pencils that are queued ready to go that I haven't had time I did the last thing I posted was the holiday images that we did for third rail design lab i did one and then drow in portugal and also our our pal torsten in berlin mm-hmm. did one so in total of three which we put to the website and on instagram and stuff so pinups set in our third rail universe which we do every year and i just finished while we were talking my new year's eve celebration pick that i do every year although this time i again because of my focus on third rail in 2017 i kind of was in that mode and so i did it um based on more of my characters and i realized now after the fact that i've been doing rogue for (laughs) several years i had several new year's eve picks that was rogue in some some iteration of her or other characters and then a little chibi version of their nemesis kind of floating around as the baby the new year's baby right (laughs) and i didn't do that this year so now i'm like oh but anyway, that's fine. That's Change pretty funny. Change or die. <laughs> so I should have this posted probably tomorrow. Right on. Um, yeah, so I'm excited about it. I hope to have some more opportunities to do some stuff um, and get focused on what matters, I guess. But I'm glad that your kidney stones are not having you writhing around in dog hair right now. Not currently, anyway. Yeah, I, <laughs> I am trying to stay massively, massively hydrated. But this this weather does not help. But... <laughs> Uh, you know, and honestly, it's the weather plus the lifestyle of the holidays where we're eating weird different food and, like, my hours are a little, well, they're not weirder, they're actually more normal. I'm getting to bed a little earlier and still getting up at 7 o'clock in the morning. And so it's just, it's hard for me to remember to drink water consistently. I can see that. But, yeah, it's getting there. I they don't want to have to deal with this again. This is only the second time I've had kidney stones, and it's you had this before. Yeah, about five years ago, I did. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, and you know, I. It's, do you think you're, you're predisposed to it, or do you think it's about? Oh, no, it's it's entirely diet. I mean, I know like some people can be, but they get it a lot more consistently. Whereas like last, last time I had it, it was in the winter. It was a super dry season. I'd been eating unhealthy and not drinking enough liquids. And I mean, basically the exact same circumstances. So it's just one of those things where it's like, drink water, man. Don't, don't let it. Cause basically what the kidney stone is, is it's uric acid building up in your kidneys because you don't have enough liquid in there and so like that acid builds up it forms little razor blade covered crystals that then have to go through your ureter down to the bladder that that you then pee out this is all really exciting podcasting and that it's that that travel down to the bladder that absolutely murders you because it's i mean it lodges in that tiny little tube and bounces around and just get it cuts you it's it feels like there's somebody up underneath your rib cage just punching you over and over again and i mean it's just it the the pain is indescribable it's this mix of agony and throbbing and dull and sharp pains all at the same time it's it's crazy man i hope to never have to experience it again 
<laughs> oh my god i mean it sounds so brutal um and and like you said though it's kind of like one of those things where you know diet and and hydration could could make a difference but right. at the same time you know the circumstances of lifestyle and 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 things kind of prevent you from doing what you need to do and then by the time you, you know by the time you feel the effects of it it's kind of like it's too late yeah and you know luckily um you know like there's there's obviously pain pills that they can give you that help but i mean really like soda's a big thing with it because there's something about the the combination of the citric acid in there and the the sugar and everything else that it actually it it makes you more likely to have the kidney stones and i've cut my soda consumption way back um particularly compared to five years ago but five years ago i was working for walgreens and particularly over the holidays i was drinking multiple energy drinks a day and all of that whereas now i'll maybe have a can of soda a day which is still higher than i'd like to be but you know the rum's gotta go in something (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say that um uh, soda is one of your food groups, right? It used to be. Now it's it's. <laughs> I've really moved towards popcorn as being the primary food group of mine. I see. Yeah. I see. <laughs> I was. Um, I think sometimes being a man of a certain age about the um, about the fact that my diet is different than um, it was when I was younger, necessarily, mm-hmm. and that um, and that my body can't process things the same way. And, you know, I have to be more careful about what I eat, or I should be anyway. And, right. And so forth. But sometimes I think about the folly of youth. Most people I know, they have these images from their, from when they were teenagers or in college or whatever, where they, you know, they would just it's cocaine and, and this and that and all this really indulgences and 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 frankly, my indulgences are today more than they were then. I mean, there were some indulgences in college, but I mean, I think probably on a, on a regular basis, I drink more now than I did then. Right. As, as a parent of two small children <laughs> and a 24-hour job, you know. But um, but anyway, what I was going to say was um, sometimes I'm reminded that there was a phase, a good chunk of college where um, – and I had a girlfriend at the time that was an enabler for this. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. But um, I had a fridge full of – I may have told you this, but I had like a fridge full of generic Coke, mm-hmm. like, like that that um, grocery store's version. Like Shasta Cola or whatever. But it wasn't even Shasta though. It was just <laughs> Acme number one good Coke. Nice. And then – and I had a lot of um, delicious green olives. <laughs> so – and maybe some – and I think like a block of cheddar or something. And that was what was in my fridge. Nice. And I would just be pounding Coke and eating olives and cheddar. Now, these are all things – I love olives and cheddar to this day, but it's right. not the fundamental – it's not the 90% of my diet. <laughs> it was in this range of time in college. But the idea that I would go – I remember going to the fridge, you know, whether it was after working or whether it was after class or whether it was after some, you know, I don't know, some sexy times. Whatever, literally, 3 in the morning, go and pound a, pound a Coke, go back yeah. to bed. Kind of, and – Today, if I were to just, if I very, very rarely, in a non-ramen Coke environment, if I were to rarely just kind of grab a grab a Coke with some meal, I can't get over how sweet it is because yeah. I'm so not used to that. I drink mineral water now instead of instead of cola. But boy, oh boy, it doesn't take much to get your body accustomed to have a tolerance for that, and then you know you get sucked into it. Next thing right. you know, you're pounding those things. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that's been difficult with me with. 
as I'm getting older, I'm becoming more sensitive to the caffeine, and mm. I will get headaches if I just go cold turkey. So I've had to like slowly cut it back. I can't just be like, nope, no more soda, um, because you know it's it's something where I can't drink coffee at two o'clock in the afternoon in the summer. That's not right. something I can do. And so I'm hoping by the time summer rolls around, I'll have cut back enough that my cup of coffee in the morning is good enough for the day kind of thing. I don't need the caffeine to prevent headaches. But, right. you know, it's it's a gradual thing. It's a health thing. I'm not going to say it's a resolution because I don't make New Year's resolutions. But Me neither. I'm hoping that's something I can tackle this year anyway. Cool, man. So you just um, you just had your, your big day of building Legos. And uh, and I noticed that you mentioned that you kind of go back and you pull your instructions from previous sets and you rebuild those sets. And my right? Yeah, yeah. We um, my wife has started going through all of the old like giant Rubbermaid totes of Legos and sorting them back into the sets. Oh, interesting. And so, so she's. Using the instructions to do that? Yeah, there's online you can bring up stuff on like brickset.com and right. they'll list like the, sh- the shape of brick and how many this set needs. So you can go through and start kind of culling it and collating it into sets. And so I've kind of gone through and picked out a few that I loved as a kid that I'm like, you know, I'd love to see this set put together again. I think that'd be fun. And I have most of them, but unfortunately, like, over the years, especially as a kid, we were rough on our stuff, man. Like, we'd step on the stuff, or, you know, He-Man would attack the village, and so you'd get a Lego that snaps or something like that every now and then. Right. So I'm I'm sure I'm not going to be able to get all of them, but she did manage to, to dig up all the pieces for a set from 1989 this year, which was pretty wow. fun. <laughs> One of the um, one of the neat things about having a um, a local Lego shop like I do is that you you can go with the, your part list mm-hmm. if you want to build one like a build build one of those ones you buy you you buy or find the the guide online of some custom thing that someone's created you can go and find all you can pick out either you could do it online right but I mean yeah. you could also in person go and say okay I need this part and that part and then you can build it um, I was re- I thought about you because I I just went to Home Depot and got um, yet another um, sorting system for all. <laughs> my, my kids build it, and I like to organize it, right? Yeah. So I, I have them all in, as you saw, I think when you were here last. I have them all in Chinese food plastic bins, right. like these little containers of black and clear ones. Um, but they're very thin, and they're also not shaped for stacking, right? They're mm-hmm. they're these weird ovals and stuff. So I went and got um, a series of two, four, and six quart um, clear plastic with lid. In, you know boxes some of them right. the smaller ones have a lid that's, that's built into it and the others have a removal lid and so i'm going to go in there and start trying to put them all in there because i think that that's going to make it for optimum utility that you can bring the box out they have to be easily stackable right pull them all out pull them all out get the colors you want whatever and put them back and whatever and so it occurred to me though um thinking about what your wife is doing that uh i could dig up some uh, part lists and instructions from older sets mm-hmm. and just see if I could put them together based on what I have in inventory. <laughs> I'm getting to that point where I have enough stuff. Not your level, but, you know, I well, don't have a lot of custom parts. But Interesting I have when you start looking at some of the older sets, too. I, I, like, I don't know if you've ever put together any of this stuff from, like, the late 80s, early 90s. But uh, the... 
instruction books are radically different the way they do it. Oh, really? Yeah. I it's like, okay, so these days you open up a Lego book and it shows you, okay, step 19. You're going to need three of these, two of these, one of these, two of these. And you right. put them, ding, ding, ding. They're they're right. lit up. They're highlighted. They're a different color. Back then. Generally, generally very good exonometrics, but you, you really realize how good they are when you see an off-brand yes. non-Lego kit and they don't know how to draw it. And the... Old Lego sets didn't even do any kind of indicator as to which bricks you were putting on. So you literally have to go across the entire surface of the set and go, oh, that's a new one, that's a new one, that's a new one, that's a new one. And so I remember as a kid, I would be putting together these sets and I'd get two or three steps out and be like, oh, shit, I missed a brick somewhere. And have to go back and figure out where I missed a brick or where I put it on slightly off, that kind of thing. And it's funny, like my wife was looking at the instruction book and she's like, oh, my God, this is kind of hard compared to the new ones. And I'm like, you're putting together a 4,000 piece set over here and mine has less (laughs) than 400 in it. (laughs) But it's just it's the way they've improved uh just layout and design and everything. It's amazing the way Lego has managed to take, like you said, basically the same bricks. You can take and pick up most of these bricks now, contemporary, that they were doing back in 1984 kind of thing. It's just crazy to me that those sets will still interconnect no problem. It's just that they've improved the other aspects of it. Right, right, right. I... um. I have a disdain for the custom part. I have a disdain mm-hmm. for the increasing reliance on custom parts. We've, we've bitched about this before, it, yeah. particularly with regards to as they brought on these these uh, franchise, these brand the the brand association where they bring those in, and you know right. now you got to have these these figures or they have these you know custom components that make it or like the octo i like the octopus but that's a good example of like why is this a thing right right um so when i go to that lego shop and you can rent by the hour just playing around and i go in there with my son and we're just screwing around i i look at these bins the big mixed bins because i don't even go to their 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 pre-sorted ones i actually right. just go to the giant vat and i and i build a i build a bot like i always do right mm-hmm. well i find these incredibly custom pieces and what kills me is i need symmetry i need a number of the same piece because i'm always building these sort of insectoid type bots right so i'll find this really weird custom piece and there's no companion to it and i'm like what am i supposed to do with this thing it really irritates me i mean it was i i I think i'm happy at like i don't know late 80s level custom (laughs) parts like the little cockpits have started to look right and the clear looks better and you have maybe turbines and stuff now, maybe, or like the little flex, <laughs> the little flex tubes, and and that's about as far as I need it, right? Yeah. The thing I like the most about building the kits with my kids the first time before we take the photo and then blow it up is learning from the instructions how to do creative things with those parts. I know yeah. we've talked about this before, but I love that. For example, using the the one brick. That has the U-shaped clamp on it, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You use that along with a pistol, and you now have a joint. Right. Before some of these sets, I never would have thought to use the pistols as constructs for um, structure. And one of the best examples of how they do this are the tiny kits. Not the big ones, but like the ones that are in the advent calendar 
and the little blend, the little bags that you could buy for five bucks or whatever it is, and it's some little thing you do, you'll see them be very creative about the use of certain parts because they're trying to simulate something bigger and more complicated with 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 very few parts. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a ton uh, just going through that, even though I don't intend to rebuild that same kit. You know? <laughs> right. But you know, it's kind of cool. So anyway, so Legos, fun with Legos. I was Lego. I was I was asking you about this because. Um, my son or daughter got a blind bag minifig for Christmas uh, and opened it up and was like, huh? And I was a little shocked. My wife was just looking at it like, what? It's like a little assassin. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'll send you a pic of this guy. Maybe you've seen him, but he has, he's got tactile gear. He's got a back, a black backpack, matte black backpack. Okay. He's one hand, he's holding a rope. The other hand, he's holding a sniper rifle, or no, I mean a pistol, a pistol with a silencer, and then he's got night vision goggles. So he's a full-on special ops kind of guy. <laughs> as okay. A, as a Lego minifig. That's sweet. I, I'm I'm sort of I'm used to associating this kind of thing with the play school or uh, Playmobil ones, you know, from Europe, where it's like here's the bank robber and here's the slave owner and stuff. <laughs> but, but this is nutty, and so he's in. He's been given to me, and he's in. Nice. Space. Anyway, all right. Hanging so there you go with K two S O. Oh yes, he's up there. K two S O is throttling Batman right now. I don't know. Make of make of that what you will. Eh, Batman probably deserves it. <laughs> so okay, so that I think wraps up our first. Mega pa- mega podcast for 2017. Oh so. yeah, yeah. We shouldn't date it in case you get to this in 2018. But yeah, I think 2017 is at least a safe date to have attached to. It. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next time we'll do some micro reviews and we'll also get to some of the the TV shows and things we're yeah, reading. And some stuff others. we're looking forward to, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds good. All right, man. Sweet. Well. uh I know I'll talk to you one way or the other before the new year, but um, by the time this airs, it will have been the new year. We might all actually all be ash. It's, the way it's things extremely are possible. I don't so even know. Before you go, though, if we are not all ash, I know it's been a while since we've done this. How can people get a hold of you, Tom? <sighs> I really wish I could just do like you and just have to. You have your one keyword in any any environment that is searching for, they'll find you. <laughs> I still don't have it quite dialed in, but I'm. I'm T H O M Tom at thirdraildesignlab.com or Third Rail Design Lab on Instagram. You can search Facebook that way. But you know, I have this nice website now, thirdraildesignlab.com. It has everything you need and all the links are there. Plus you can buy the stuff and look at the other stuff and it's great. Go there. Woo-hoo. And you can go to deeplydapper.com for me or look up Deeply Dapper on any of the assorted social media sites. Robot-Kraken.com continues to be your go-to source yeah. for news bits and bites and interesting thingy-doos. Uh, I'm still posting to that on a regular basis with the sort of the general news of the day, although at this point I'm I'm thinning it and I'm kind of focusing more on just what I'm amused by or interested in and less about a recap of what's already been told to you on USA Today at this point, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> right. Um, and then again, we have the new Instagram account for the last month that is mostly focused on money shots and red tentacles from things we like. Things but. we like. <clears throat> yeah. hey. So right, man. I hope you liked it. I hope you enjoyed this first new and improved version of Robot Kraken. And I did. I did. I I I, I am enjoying it. So 
<laughs> that's all that matters, right? As long as you and I are happy. You and me. It feels weird. <laughs> it feels weird to wrap this up before midnight or one. It is odd. I mean, it is well, almost I mean, for me, midnight for me. for me, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. The, the center of the universe is Pacific Standard Time, and it's only 1041 right now, so... Ah. Oh. <laughs> but, uh... All right, cool, man. Well, great. Have I a good will night, talk everybody. You, I'll talk to you soon, and let's look forward to the next podcast, huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Happy New Year, everyone. Put the Kraken back in the bottle, and then... Yeah. Uncrack the bottle for the New Year's, but that already happened, so it's back in the bottle or something. <laughs> something like that. We'll figure yeah. out this ending eventually, I promise. No, probably not. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>